Welcome to Pack Talk Podcast, episode 89. We're doing a special episode today. We're going to be reviewing the book Outlive, which is a book by Dr. Peter Atia on the science and art of longevity. And uh, basically, just a little bit of background, Dr. Peter Atia, he's a doctor who now focuses on the art and science of longevity. He's been on like the Joe Rogan podcast several times. He's been on Jocko podcast several several times. He's been on the Huberman Lab podcast several times and a bunch of other podcasts, especially now with the book being out for several months. He's just continuing to go on podcasts. He also has his own podcast, which is called The Drive. Um, He received his medical degree from Stanford University, and he also trained at Johns Hopkins Hospital. He was a surgical oncologist fellow at the National Cancer Institute. And so for me specifically, I thought it was important to review this book today. The idea of longevity has become more important to me over recent years as I'm sure it has been to other people. Ben, you thinking about your long-term game plan here? Stay alive as long as I can. I'm only in my early 30s, but I think that the the earlier you start on this journey, the better, especially after reviewing the information that Dr. Peter Atiyah puts in this book. And so um, I think the information in this book, Outlive, is important for as many people to be exposed to as possible, which is why I decided to review it on the podcast. So I've got a bunch of highlights, some notes we're going to go through today. I'll be covering as much information as I can as possible. However, I'm leaving out a lot of information. I'm basically trying to dumb this down per se and give everyone the wave top information that they can think about and implement in their, uh, you know, longevity goal plan, you know, game plan. Yeah. Um, but I do recommend if you want to get more in the weeds, you can get the book, you can get the audio book, you can listen to his podcast. Now, Dr. Atiyah himself, he does get super sciencey, super technical, mm-hmm. both in the book and his podcast and on other podcasts mm-hmm. he's been on. Yeah. So my goal is to try and, again, dumb it down, right, per se, give you the wave top information mm-hmm. so that hopefully you can uh, get some insight on protocols and things you can do today to help increase your health span and your lifespan and longevity, which we'll talk about here in the book. But kind of my own journey when this book came out, I decided to get a little bit more serious about longevity goals. You know what I'm saying? So I got some blood tests, blood, blood tests done with specific markers that he mentions in this book um, through my telehealth company, which is Merrick Health. And uh, my doctor, Adam Hotchkiss, is a big fan of Dr. Peter Atia. And so he kind of aligns with the same thing that um, Peter Atia is talking about. So I've made a bunch of changes, which I'll talk about as we go through the book here. But uh, anyway, hope you guys enjoy the review today. And as always, give your comments and feedback after the episode. And hopefully, uh, you know, you figure out some things you want to change. So starting off in the introduction here, basically Dr. Atia, he's kind of giving a nightmare that he's had over the years, which is, you know, just imagine yourself in a dark, cloudy environment with a skyscraper and eggs are falling off of the skyscraper and he is this person in the dream where he's running around trying to catch these eggs before they fall and break on the ground right can you imagine that? yeah i'm picturing it 
So Inter- interesting image. Interesting image. And so uh, basically what it represents is the eggs that are falling are health problems that people are having. Mm. And he's the doctor mm. trying to solve all these problems before they become detrimental to this person. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I'm going to go to the book here and read uh, just a little bit from the introduction. He said, in short, it had finally dawned on me that the only way to solve the problem was not to get better at catching the eggs. Instead, we needed to try and stop the guy who was throwing them. We had to figure out how to get to the top of the building, find the guy, and take him out. Mm. So basically, he's saying rethinking the way that we do medicine, rethinking the way that doctors operate. Instead of trying to catch the eggs and solve the eggs as they're falling, how can we solve the problem before it even starts? Yeah. You see what I'm saying? So yeah. that's kind of the underlying theme here of the book. Okay. And uh, he also mentions that longevity does not mean living forever or even to age 120 or to age 150, right? He said, the majority of people reading this book can expect to die somewhere in their 70s or 80s, give or take, and almost all from slow causes. Assuming you're not someone who engages in ultra-risky behaviors like base jumping, motorcycle racing, or texting and driving... Mm. The odds are overwhelming that you will die as a result of one of the chronic diseases of aging that I call the four horsemen. Heart disease, cancer, neurodegenerative disease, or type 2 diabetes, and related metabolic dysfunction. Mm -hmm. To achieve longevity, to live longer, and live better for longer, we must understand and confront these causes of slow death. Longevity has two components. The first is how long you live, your chronological lifespan. But the second and equally important part is how well you live, the quality of your years. This is called health span. So just pausing right there, I mean, you think about that. Mm-hmm. You know, do you want to live longer but not be able to do things? Or do you want to be able to live longer and still be able to do things? And that's what we have to think about when we're thinking about longevity. Mm -hmm. And just as a disclaimer, you know, Ben is my brother. We have the same grandfather. He's 100 years old. Yep. You know, he's still getting around doing stuff. He's still volunteering at the hospital, you know, which is something that he enjoys doing. So I would say he's got a long uh, lifespan and a long health span Mm -hmm. because he's still able to do things versus somebody that has to have people like a caretaker a caretaker doing everything for right, them and yeah. they're just kind of vegetating out yeah he's still able to walk around get up on for the most part get up on his own you right know, do this do that you know right exactly continuing on health span is typically defined as the period of life when you are free from disability or disease but i find this too simplistic i'm as free from disability and disease as when i was 25 year old medical student but my 20-something self could run circles around 50-year-old me, both physically and mentally. That's just a fact. Thus, the second part of our plan for longevity is to maintain and improve our physical and mental function. The key question is, where am I headed from here? What's my future trajectory? And so pausing right there, you know, we all should probably ask this question if we care about this subject, yeah, you know, not everyone's going to care about this, Mm -hmm. but where are you going from here? You know, what's your future trajectory, Mm -hmm. right? If you're 20, you can take action now 
to try and increase your health span and, and lifespan already. Yeah. You know, if you're 30, if you're 40, it doesn't matter what age you are, you can start to implement some changes immediately mm -hmm. to change the trajectory of your future. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Continuing on, he says, the only way to create a better future for yourself to set yourself on a better trajectory is to start thinking about it and taking action now, which is basically what we just said. It doesn't matter yeah. what age you are, what, what stage of life you're in. You got to realize, Hey, I need to start taking action immediately. Yeah. Moving forward here in the book a little bit. He says, in every case, we are intervening at the wrong point in time. Well, after the, the disease has taken hold, and often when it's already too late, when the eggs are already dropping. It gutted me every time I had to tell someone suffering from cancer that she had six months to live, knowing that the disease had likely taken up residence in her body several years before it was ever detectable. We had wasted a lot of time. While the prevalence of each of the horseman diseases increases sharply with age, they typically begin much earlier than we recognize and they generally take a long time to kill you. Even when someone dies suddenly of a heart attack, the disease had likely been progressing in their coronary arteries for two decades. Slow death moves even more slowly than we realize. The logical conclusion is that we need to step in sooner to try to stop the horsemen in their tracks, or better yet, prevent them altogether. Yet mainstream medicine still insists on waiting until the point of diagnosis before we intervene. So basically, he's trying to get us to think a little bit differently. Yeah. Right? All these main diseases that can kill us, we got heart disease, cancer, neurodegenerative disease, which is like obviously mental, uh, mm -hmm. you know, mental decline, brain right. uh, decline, and then you have type 2 diabetes and metabolic dysfunction. Mm. These are slow moving diseases, yeah. right? And we can take action now to prevent them or slow them down even more. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But mainstream medicine is not going to take that action. Yeah. So if you're going to like your regular doctor and I hesitate to use the word holistic, but I think that's kind of what category people that are thinking about prevention are falling in these days. But if you're going to like a regular doctor, they may not be thinking about these things. They may not be aware of these things as far as prevention. They may wait until there's some kind of, you know, indicator that something's starting and then take action at that point. Yeah. Whereas if you go to a holistic doctor per se, then, uh, you know, that person may be more about prevention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons why after I read this book, I looked into changing up my own you know doctor and now i have my telehealth doctor who is a more of a holistic guy looking into prevention long term right you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. all right moving on <clears throat> he says medicine's biggest failing is in attempting to treat all these conditions at the wrong end of the time scale after they are entrenched rather than before they take root as as a result we ignore important warning signs and miss opportunities to intervene at a point where we still have a chance to beat back these diseases, improve health, and potentially extend lifespan. Just to pick a few examples, despite throwing billions of dollars in, in research funding at the horsemen, 
mainstream medicine has gotten crucial things dead wrong about their root causes. We will examine some of the promising new theories about the origin and causes of each and possible strategies for prevention. The typical cholesterol panel that you receive and discuss at your annual physical, along with many of the underlying assumptions behind it, such as good and bad cholesterol, is misleading and oversimplified to the point of uselessness. It doesn't tell us nearly enough about your actual risk of dying from heart disease, and we don't do nearly enough to stop this killer. Millions of people are suffering from a little-known and underdiagnosed liver condition that is a potential precursor to type 2 diabetes. Yet people at the early stages of this meta metabolic derangement will often return blood tests in the normal range. Unfortunately, in today's unhealthy society, normal or average is not the same as optimal. And I'll pause right there. You know, optimal versus normal or average. If you get a blood test done, which I've done one this year once, I'm doing another one later this year, which is 2023. But, uh, you know, a lot of my indicators are in the normal range according to the blood tests. But my doctor himself can tell me this is not optimal. This is optimal, you know? So I think we have to make that distinction like Dr. Peter Atiyah is saying here. Right. That normal or average is not the same as optimal. Moving on. The metabolic derangement that leads to type 2 diabetes also helps foster and promote heart disease, cancer, and Alzheimer's disease. Addressing our, our metabolic health can lower the risk of each of the horsemen. Almost all diets are similar. They may help some people, but prove useless for most. Instead of arguing about diets, we will focus on nutritional biochemistry, how the combination of nutrients that you eat affect your own metabolism and physiology, and how to use data and technology to come up with the best eating pattern for you. One micronutrient in particular demands more of our attention than most people realize. Not carbs, not fat, but protein becomes critically important as we age. Exercise is by far the most potent longevity drug. No other intervention does nearly as much to prolong our lifespan and preserve our cognitive and physical function. But most people don't do nearly enough, and exercising the wrong way can do as much harm as good. Finally, as I learned the hard way, striving for physical health and longevity is meaningless if we ignore our emotional health. Emotional suffering can decimate our health on all fronts, and it must be addressed. So this is some of his main things he talks about in the book, which we're going to go through. Yeah. But one of the things I love about this book is how just honest Dr. Peter Atia is in his experiences and stuff, which... I think we're going to cover some of them if I remember all my highlights, but not all of them. Right. But he's definitely been on a crazy emotional health journey, which he details at the last chapter of the book, which we will briefly go into, but we're not going to go through his whole journey. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that journey's dark, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Some of the stuff that he struggled with. And mm -hmm. I think that that's something that a lot of people in today's world are struggling with. So I'm really glad that he included yeah. it in the book for sure. Yeah. All right. Moving on. My goal is to create an actionable operating manual 
for the practice of longevity, a guide that will help you outlive. I hope to convince you that with enough time and effort, you can potentially expand your lifespan by a decade and your health span possibly by two, meaning you might hope to function like someone 20 years younger than you. But my intent here is not to tell you exactly what to do. It's to help you learn how to think about doing these things. More broadly, longevity demands a paradigm-shifting approach to medicine, one that directs our efforts towards preventing chronic diseases and improving our health span, and doing it now rather than waiting until disease has taken hold or until our cognitive and physical function has already declined. It's not preventative medicine, it's proactive medicine. And I believe it has the potential not only to change the lives of individuals, but also to relieve vast amounts of suffering in our society as a whole. This change is not coming from the medical establishment either. It will happen only if and when patients and physicians demand it. Only by altering our approach to medicine itself can we get to the rooftop and stop the eggs from falling. None of us should be satisfied racing around at the bottom trying to catch them. So we keep going back to that analogy. Mm-hmm. You know? I like how he said uh, he's not telling you what to do, but how to think right. you know, about what you're doing. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. You know? Because, I mean, you can give protocols, but uh, they don't apply to everybody, which he harps on in this book. Like, he, he has patients because he has a medical practice. Right. Um, but he has patients that do a certain protocol that works for them, other patients that do another protocol that works for the other person. So it's not a one-stop shop. Yeah. You know, you got to take the individual into account. Uh, so moving on into the next chapter here. Now he's make he's trying to make more of a distinction between the way, the way that medicine currently works, you know, overall the medical system mm-hmm. and how he feels it show it should work toward that proactive type of medicine like he said, right? So back to the book here he says, "I believe we need a new way of thinking about chronic diseases, their treatment and how to maintain long-term health." The goal of this new medicine which I call Medicine 3.0, is not to patch people up and get them out the door, removing their tumors and hoping for the best, but rather to prevent the tumors from appearing and spreading in the first place, or to avoid that first heart attack, or to divert someone from the path of Alzheimer's disease. Our treatments and our prevention and detection strategies need to change to fit the nature of these diseases with their long, slow prologues. So again, thinking differently, being proactive. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So he's going to give us some details here on how he thinks Medicine 3.0 should operate, which is what he's calling this new way of thinking. Right. First, Medicine 3.0 places a far greater emphasis on prevention than treatment. Second, Medicine 3.0 considers the patient as a unique individual. Medicine 2.0, which is the old way of thinking, treats everyone as basically the same, obeying the findings of the clinical trials that underline evidence-based medicine. Medicine 3.0, our starting point is the honest assessment and acceptance of risk, including the risk of doing nothing. If you do nothing, 
certain things will probably happen. Yeah. Right. Or you can take action. Mm-hmm. The fourth and perhaps perhaps largest shift is that where medicine 2.0 focuses largely on lifespan and is almost entirely geared towards staving off death. Medicine 3.0 pays more attention to maintaining health span, which is the quality of life. So we got a good understanding now yeah. of medicine 2.0 versus 3.0, yep. you know, bottom line here. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on. We're now talking about overall objectives and strategies and tactics. So kind of like big, big picture stuff here. He said, this is our objective to delay death and to get the most out of our extra years. The rest of our lives because becomes a time to relish rather than to dread. The next obvious question is, how do we accomplish this? How do we lengthen our lifespan while simultaneously extending our health span? How do we stave off death via the horseman while slowing or even reversing physical, cognitive, and emotional decline? What's our plan? This is where most people make a wrong turn. They want to take a shortcut right to the tactics. This is what to eat and not to eat. That is how you should exercise. These are the supplements or medications you need, and so on. There are warehouses full of books that purport to have the answers, but the one you are reading now is not one of them. Instead, I believe this is exactly where we need to hit pause and take a step back, lest we skip the most important step in the process, the overall strategy. Take another look at the Sun Tzu quote that opens this chapter. Tactics without strategy is the noise before defeat. He was talking about war, but applies to here well, as well. To achieve our objectives, we first need to have a strategy, an overall approach, a conceptual scaffolding or mental model that is informed by science, is tailored to our goals, and gives us options. Our our specific tactics flow from this strategy, and the strategy derives from our objective. We know what the objective is by now, but the strategy is the key to victory. So I think this is a problem a lot of people make is like they're worried about specific things without knowing the overall arching game plan, you know, Mm -hmm. and this applies to health. Like we're talking about today, longevity, it applies to business. It applies to training your dog. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Everything that you're doing, Mm -hmm. you got to have an overall strategy. You got to have an objective and then you can have specific tactics after that. Yeah. Continuing on. Living longer means delaying death from all four of the horsemen. The horsemen do have one powerful risk factor in common, and that is age. As you grow older, the risk grows exponentially that one or more of these diseases has begun to take hold in your body. Unfortunately, there's not much we can do about our chronological age. But what do we mean by aging exactly? It's not merely the passage of time but what's happening inside of us, beneath the surface, and in our organs and our cells as time passes. Entropy is working on us every single day. So no matter who you are, as you get older, your body, you know, I would... Time's ticking. 
It's deteriorating yeah. per se. Your skin is deteriorating. Right. So I got to put on your sunscreen. Yeah. So yeah, I got to sure. have your uh, your lotion at nighttime. Yeah. You got skincare? Yeah. <laughs> no. You got your skincare options? My skincare, CeraVe in the shower, you mm-hmm. know, it cleans your your facial skin up, you know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, my girlfriend has like an hour long process. Oh, no, we know Lauren. Yeah, she's, she's got, got her skincare. Multi, multi-step process. That's good. She oh, wants yeah. that skin to be longevity oh yeah longevity of she's going for the youthful look in her later years you know there you go you got to start now yeah that's the key she wants me to get on the game but it legit takes like an hour (laughs) i'm like i'd rather just (laughs) do my therapy in the shower and then keep moving on so you're uh you're accepting the risk that you're gonna have i'm gonna have wrinkles wrinkly old wrinkles i'm not hopefully i'm not gonna be a leather face but you know (laughs) all right continuing on I think about health span and its deterioration in terms of three categories or vectors. The first vector of deterioration is cognitive decline. That's your brain, yeah. the way your, your brain's working. The second vector of deterioration is the, de- is the decline and eventual loss of function of our physical body. This may precede or follow cognitive decline. There is no predetermined order. But as we grow older, frailty stalks us. We lose muscle mass and strength, along with bone density, stamina, stability, and balance, until it becomes almost impossible to carry a bag of groceries in the house. Hmm. I mean, you think about it, you know, you want to be able to do certain things when you're older. Yeah. You want to carry your groceries in. It's something yeah. as simple as that. Don't be the old person at Publix who needs the uh, <laughs> the Publix right. bagger to walk them out of their car. But the car, Publix bagger know? ain't going to your house either. Yeah, you got to carry them into the house. True, true. Or like, uh, you know, I just left uh, All's Well Somerville, got my dog food. Mm-hmm. It's like 50 pounds, throw it on my shoulder, walk out to my truck, throw it in my truck. Yeah. I want to be able to do that when I'm older. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Did you use your uh, your code when you went to All's Well? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Got the code, boys. Mm-hmm. Got the NFT. Yep. All right. Continuing on. The third and final category of deterioration, I believe has to do with emotional health. Unlike the others, this one is largely independent of age. It can afflict outwardly healthy young people in their 20s, or it can creep up on you in middle age as it did with me, or it can descend later in life. We may not recognize we are in danger until we reach a crisis point, as I did. How we deal with it has a huge bearing on our physical health, our happiness, and our very survival. And he brings up a good point, like emotional health. Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't it like if you live a very stressful life, yeah, that's going to take a long-term toll on if you. If you're stressed out, for example, that's going to affect other parts of your, it's going to affect your physicality. It's going to affect your cognition. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? How old is this guy? Because he keeps saying when he's, you're at my age. He's in his 50s. Oh, he right is. Now. Yeah. I thought he was in his like 40s or 30s no, or late 30s. 50s. Oh. Yeah. All right. Continuing. And he's done a lot of stuff in his life. I don't have all of his statistics, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that he swam from like the uh, California coast out to San Canalina Island, which mm, is an yeah. uh, island several miles off the coast. Like Dang. he's done that. Hardcore. He's done a lot of like biking stuff, you know, so yeah. he's a pretty physical guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know? Mm-hmm obviously a a doctor you know been through a lot of stuff as a doctor as a surgeon those kind of things so Mm -hmm. he's got a lot of lessons learned obviously all right moving on now we're talking about tactics 
He said the key difference between Medicine 2.0 and Medicine 3.0 has to do with how and when we apply our tactics. Typically, Medicine 2.0 steps in only when something is acutely wrong, like an infection or a broken bone, with short-term fixes for the immediate problem. In Medicine 3.0, our tactics must become interwoven in our daily lives. We eat, breathe, and sleep them, literally. Medicine 2.0 relies on two types of tactics. Broadly speaking, procedures like surgery and medications. Our tactic in Medicine 3.0 falls into five broad domains. Exercise, nutrition, sleep, emotional health, and exogenous molecules, meaning drugs, hormones, or supplements. And to the to the listener, please excuse my reading. <laughs> I'm not I'm not uh, you know you're, English. You're not a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a doctor. <laughs> like I said, he's pretty technical in science. He yeah. said he uses big words in here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, Just skip I'm, over those words. <laughs> obviously, I'm challenged a little <laughs> bit here <laughs> with my reading abilities. Yeah. All right, moving on. My aim here is to equip you with a set of tools that you can apply to your own specific situation. Whether you need to pay attention to your glucose regulation, your weight, your physical condition, your Alzheimer's disease risk, and so on. Your personal tactics should never be static, but will evolve as needed as you journey through life with all of its uncertainties. And as we learn more about the science of aging and the workings of diseases like cancer, as your own situation changes, your tactics can and must change as well. Because as the great philosopher Mike Tyson once put it, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. The great philosopher. He was a philosopher. You know that, right? Mike Tyson? Yeah. <laughs> That's a joke. Uh-huh. <laughs> also, uh, Peter Atia was a big boxing guy. I don't know if he ever oh, really? like, went with Mike Tyson, but uh, when he was young, he was big into boxing. Holy shit. Yeah. All right, so then the next chapter, he talks about centenarians, which are basically people that have lived over 100 years. Right. And so he goes through a bunch of different stories of centenarians, but basically uh, one of the longest person, one of the longest lived persons ever recorded was a Pennsylvanian named Sarah, and she lived uh, to be 119 years old before she died. Damn. That's just crazy. And some of these people, they're like 105, and they're yeah. riding bikes. They're doing other things. He's got all these stories in here. Dang. And uh, there have been at least two people that are recorded past 120 years old. Holy cow. Which are which is pretty crazy, you know? That is crazy. So he's got a whole chapter about that where he's giving you some stories of people that are 100. And some of these people, they're smoking their whole life. Yeah, yeah. Some of these people, they're, is, they're drinking their whole life. Which is so funny. Or just which is crazy. Yeah, it's just like, But he right. does he does break that down to uh, like sometimes your genetics are yeah. just going to overpower everything else. Yeah, I was going to say genetic. So at the end of that chapter, he says, in the end, I think the centenarian secret comes down to one word, resilience. They're able to resist and avoid cancer and cardiovascular disease, even when they have smoked for decades. They're able to maintain ideal metabolic health, often despite a lousy diet. And they resist cognitive and physical decline long after their peers succumb. It is this resilience that we want to cultivate so they can handle it basically Hmm. you know but he does break it down and say like hey their genetics are going to play a a big part of that yeah you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. 
All right. So moving on, he gets pretty sciencey. Uh, we're talking about the next chapter. He's going into some strategies of eating. Mm. You know, is there any uh, benefits of fasting? Things like that. He does talk about that in the book. I'm going to jump to a little section here. Studies dating back to the 1930s have found that limiting caloric intake can lengthen the lifespan of a mouse or rat by anywhere from 15 to 45%, depending on the age of onset and the degree of restriction. Not only that, but the underfed animals also seem to be markedly healthier for their age, developing fewer spontaneous tumors than normally fed mice. Calorie restriction seems to improve their health span in addition to their lifespan. You'd think that hunger might be unhealthy, but the scientists have actually found that the less they feed the animals, the longer they live. Its effects seem to be dose-dependent. What do you think about that? Uh, I feel like it's hard to wrap your head around, you know, because if it's on, like, mice and stuff, does that apply to humans if you eat less, you know? Or, like, yeah, he goes into that how much or less are you eating, like, mm-hmm. one meal a day? You know, or I didn't highlight this, but I'll just read it real quick. He said, numerous labs have found that restricting caloric intake lengthens lifespan, not only in rats and mice, but also in yeast, worms, flies, fish, hamsters, dogs, and even weirdly spiders. Hmm. It has been found to extend lifespan in just about every model organism on which it has been tried with the odd exception of house flies. It seems that across the board, hungry animals become more resilient and better able to survive, at least in a well-controlled, germ-free laboratory. So, so that's kind of just a, you're able to have some resilience and uh, that's what he's saying. Survival skills, I guess. I mean, it's definitely. Or, uh, I would say it's definitely better to be a little bit more restrictive in your calories, calories versus having excessive. Yeah, you yeah. See what don't I'm overeat. Right. Yeah. Continuing on here, he says, that doesn't mean that I will be recommending this type of radical caloric restriction as a tactic for my patients. However, for one, caloric restriction's usefulness remains doubtful outside of the lab. Very lean animals may be more susceptible to death from infection or cold temperatures. Mm -hmm. And while eating a bit less worked for a specific guy he was talking about as well for some of my own patients, long-term severe caloric restriction is difficult, if not impossible for most humans to, to sustain. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, there is no evidence that extreme calorie restriction would reduce, would truly maximize the longevity function in an organism as complex as humans who live more very in a more variable environment than the animals described above. Yeah. The real value of of calorie restriction research lies in the insights it has contributed to our understanding of the aging process itself. Reducing the amount of nutrients available to a cell seems to trigger a group of innate pathways that enhance the cell's stress resistance and metabolic efficiency. Getting a little science here. He does get science. (laughs) Starting to lose me. (laughs) Trying to avoid the science stuff. But that's kind of what I was saying is like, 
you know, he, like you said, humans live in variable environments or right. situations. Right. So I, I don't know if that means it yeah. applies to humans directly. Well, we'll talk about it more in the book here. But basically for me personally, once I was reading this book and digesting the information, I came to the realization that I have been, you know, and he'll talk specifically about body fat and all mm. that later, but I've been mm. over 20% body fat most of my adult life because mm-hmm. I've always been eating a lot, trying mm. to get big, yeah. you know, trying to get strong, which I like being big, like being strong. But when I read this, I knew it was time for me to get serious about mm. reducing my body fat, mainly because of the visceral fat that's inside your body. This can cause problems for longevity. Mm. So that's why right now I'm still currently on the road to get to 15% body fat. I'm currently at 19%. Although he does say uh, something about like lean mm-hmm. individuals, too lean, too lean, right? Then that Extreme could have problems. Like have if you get adverse sick. effects. Yeah, yeah. So if you think about like a bodybuilder, yeah, you see bodybuilders on like the stage competing. You see how shredded they are. Yeah, yeah. That's actually unhealthy. Mm-hmm. You know, what I'm saying extremely lean. It's way too right? lean. Yeah. You know, you can't sustain that. Yeah. But. Uh, and I think I talked about this back on episode 69 of the podcast last year when I was talking about health and fitness. But basically, you know, I think it's healthy to go into different phases where you're in a fat loss phase for a while, where you're in calorie restriction. Mm-hmm. And you go into a maintenance phase where you're eating at maintenance calories to maintain that weight. And then you can go into a gain phase again with the goal to increase your muscle mass, your lean muscle mass, but not your fat. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So going through those phases systematically, I think, is going to help you achieve your goals, Yeah. which I'm currently on a fat loss phase, uh, fluctuating between fat loss and maintenance because it's, you know, it's hard to not eat a lot of food yeah, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. or to reduce your food intake and still perform. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to balance those out. But getting to what he's talking about, you know, which the next chapter is titled The Crisis, Crisis of Abundance, which we'll talk about. But basically, in America, we have too much food. People are eating too much food. Let me get the XL. Right. Let me get the XL soda. Right. Let me right. get the XL slushy. What's the, uh, <laughs> how do you upsize things at McDonald's? I don't even know. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, upsize it or whatever, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. So it's like most Americans are probably over 20% body fat, which mm-hmm. is not necessarily good for you because yeah. that visceral fat in around your organs is the problem, right? right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, the next chapter is <clears throat> the crisis of abundance, which we'll read some excerpts from first one I have marked down and let me know if I'm getting too sciencey mm-hmm. non-alcoholic stemphasis uh, too sciencey <laughs> he calls it Nash for short yeah it's a global plague more than one of four people on this planet have some degree of Nash or its predecessor known as Naple D trying to dumb this down real yeah, quick. Yeah, Naple yeah. D is highly correlated with both obesity and hyperlipidemia, mm-hmm. which is excessive cholesterol. <clears throat> Continuing on, he says, what is normal? According to LabCorp, a leading testing company, the acceptable range is blah, blah, blah. He he's, gives the acceptable range um, for some of these ATL levels and stuff. Again, trying to re- yeah. remove some of the science out of here. He said, normal is not the same as healthy. The reference ranges for these tests are based on current percentiles, but as the population in general becomes less healthy, the average may diverge from optimal levels. So again, we talked about it a little bit ago, but there's a difference between normal, right? Uh, Between 
optimal between healthy yeah right mm-hmm. so if you get your blood work done it may say that you're in the normal range for certain things but are you really optimal you need someone to help you figure that out yeah. and then make adjustments as needed all right i'm gonna dumb this down as much as i can but uh you know i, I had a pretty sciencey part highlighted here i'm just gonna not read this because it gets pretty sciencey <laughs> but basically you need to care about you know your body weight you need to care about your uh body fat percentage that you're carrying around because the visceral fat inside your organs is the problem you know right. what i'm saying right. um this can cause problems that can inflame your organs like the liver mm. for example and then it's also going to create metabolic disorders which would be like insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes right. which a lot of people have right All right, so I'm going to pick it up here. If you find yourself anywhere on the train line, even in the early stages of NAFLD, which is going towards insulin resistance, metabolic dysfunction, type 2 diabetes stuff, you are likely also en route to one or more of the other three horsemen diseases, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and Alzheimer's disease. As we will see in the next few chapters, metabolic dysfunction vastly increases your risk for all of these so you can't fight the horseman without taking on metabolic dysfunction first notice i said metabolic dysfunction and not obesity everyone's favorite public health boogeyman it's an important distinction not everyone who is obese is metabolically unhealthy and not everyone who is metabolically unhealthy is obese there's more to metabolic health than meets the eye. And metabolic health is basically how your body is processing things in your body, processing mm-hmm. nutrients the way it's operating, right? Right. So, so you're saying there could be like an obese considered person. There can be an obese person, person who's metabolically healthy. Technically healthier than someone who's like a skinnier person. Exactly. Who could be unhealthy. Exactly. And it comes down to basically a lot of factors which we talked about but like sleep exercise diet nutrition right. those yeah. types of things mm-hmm. but you do want to figure out what your metabolic health is um and that's what a blood test can help you do so here he's gonna give some problems that show that you have metabolic syndrome metabolic dysfunction so he says metabolic syndrome is defined in terms of the following five criteria High blood pressure. If you have high blood pressure, you're, you technically have metabolic syndrome. And high blood pressure is going to be over 130, over 85. So if you're a listener, you definitely want to make sure that you're below 130, over 85. And ideally, I believe it's 120, over 80 is the ideal number to be below. Mm. Or around 120, over 80. Mm-hmm. So that's the first criteria that you have metabolic syndrome. The second criteria is high triglycerides. High, triglycer- high triglycerides would be defined as over 150 uh, milligrams per deciliter. Okay, if you're doing a test, that's what you're looking at. Even if the test says you're normal, you want to look at this number. If you're over 150 uh, milligrams per deciliter, you're high triglycerides, metabolic syndrome. See what I'm saying? Right. Low HDL cholesterol is the next one. So you want to, so low HDL cholesterol would be less than 40 milligrams per deciliter in men or less than 50 
milligrams per deciliter in women. So again, you can write these numbers down. You can get the book so that you know when you're running your tests what to look for. The fourth one is central adiposity, which is a waist circumference greater than 40 inches in men or greater than 35 inches in women. Mm. So you can measure your waist, figure that out. Yeah. You know? And then number five, elevated fasting glucose, which is greater than 110 milligrams per deciliter. He said, if you meet three or more of these criteria, you have the metabolic syndrome along with as many as 120 million other Americans. Yeah. 120 million. Yeah. Shit. And again, if you're obese, for example, you might not have metabolic syndrome. If you're obese, you could have metabolic syndrome. If you're not obese, you could not have metabolic syndrome, or you could. You got to do the testing. You got you to do your blood work and figure it out. Right. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So, again, let me just say it one more time. Metabolic syndrome, five, five criteria. If you have three or more, then you have metabolic syndrome. Number one, high blood pressure greater than 130 over 85. Number two, high triglycerides greater than 150 milligrams per deciliter. Number three, low HDL cholesterol less than 40 milligrams per deciliter in men or less than 50 milligrams per deciliter in women. Four, central adiposity, waist circumference greater than 40 inches in men or greater than 35 in women. Five, elevated fasting glucose greater than 110 milligrams per deciliter. So those are the things you're looking for to, to indicate whether you have it or not. We got it. Makes sense? Yeah. All right, moving on. Metabolism is the process by which we take in nutrients and break them down for use in the body. In someone who is metabolically healthy, those nutrients are processed and sent to their proper destinations. When someone is metabolically unhealthy, many of the calories they consume end up where they are not needed, at best, or outright harmful at worst. If you eat a donut, for example... Mm. What? Uh, what? You got my attention. Yeah, we, we know. <laughs> <laughs> if you eat a donut, for example, the body has to decide what to do with the calories in the donut. Mm -hmm. At the risk of oversimplifying a bit, the carbohydrate from our donut has two possible fates. First, it can be converted into glycogen, the storage form of glucose, suitable for use in the near term, which you would use that for energy. Right. You know, mm -hmm. an adult male can typically store about 1600 calories worth of glycogen between these two sites, which is, uh, your muscle and the liver or about enough energy for two hours of vigorous exercise. This is why if you are running a marathon or doing a long bike ride and do not replenish your fuel stores in some way, you're likely to bonk or run out of energy, which is not a pleasant experience. We have a far greater capacity, almost unlimited, for storing energy as fat, which is the second possible destination of the calories in that donut. Mm. That decision, where to put the energy from the donut, is made up via hormones, chief among them insulin, which is secreted by the pancreas when the body senses the presence of glucose, the final breakdown product of most carbohydrates, such as those in the donut. 
Insulin helps shuttle the glucose to where it's needed while maintaining glucose homeostasis. If you happen to be riding a stage of the Tour de France while you eat the donut or are engaged in other intense exercise, these calories will be consumed almost instantly in the muscles. But in a typical sedentary person who is not depleting muscle glycogen rapidly, the excess energy from the donut will largely end up in fat cells or more specifically as triglycerides contained within fat cells. The twist here is that fat, that is subcutaneous fat, the layer of fat just beneath our skin, is actually the safest place to store excess energy. Fat in and of itself is not bad. It's where we should put excess surplus calories. That's how we have evolved. While fat may not be culturally or aesthetically desirable in our modern world, subcutaneous fat actually plays an important role in maintaining metabolic health. Well, think of fat as acting like a type of like think of fat as acting like a kind of metabolic buffer zone, absorbing excess energy and storing it safely until it's needed. If we eat extra donuts, Mm -hmm. those calories are stored in our subcutaneous fat. When we go on, say, a long hike or a swim, some of that fat is released for use by the muscles. This fat flux goes on continually. And as long as you haven't exceeded your own fat storage capacity, things are pretty much fine. But if you continue to consume energy in excess of your needs, those subcutaneous fat cells will slowly fill up particularly if little of that stored energy is being utilized. When someone reaches the limit of their capacity to store energy in their subcutaneous fat, yet they continue to take on excess calories, all that energy still has to go somewhere. But now the body has to find other places to store it. It's almost as if you have a bathtub and you're filling it up from the faucet. If you keep the faucet running, even after the tub is full and the drain is closed, such as if you're sedentary, water begins spilling over the brim of the tub, flowing into places where it's not wanted or needed, like the bathroom floor, into the heating vents, or down the stairs. It's the same with excess fat. As more calories flood into your subcutaneous fat tissue, it eventually reaches capacity, and the surplus begins spilling over into other areas of your body into your blood, for example, as excess triglycerides, into your liver, contributing to NAFLD, into your muscle tissue, contributing directly to insulin resistance in the muscle, as we'll see, and even around your heart and your pancreas. None of these, obviously, are ideal places for fat to collect. NAFLD is just one of many undesirable consequences of this fat spillover. Fat also begins to infiltrate your abdomen, accumulating in between your organs. Where subcutaneous fat is thought to be relatively harmless, this visceral fat is anything but. Visceral fat is linked to increased risk of both cancer and cardiovascular disease. So I'm just going to pause there for a second because that was a little bit... A lot to unload. A lot to unload there. But like I was saying earlier, the visceral fat is the bad fat. Yeah subcutaneous fat if you pinch your skin right Right. you're not touching your muscle like that's your subcutaneous fat but if you have you ever seen people that are like poofy or like puffy puffy skin you know what i'm talking Uh, about 
know what I'm talking about? Like people that have like seen like they have like some swollen skin or whatever. I think that that means that their subcutaneous fat is like reaching that limit. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So bottom line, he's saying if you if you eat that donut or if you eat it in excess and you're not using the energy, burning the energy that it's going to give you for yeah. the, uh, was it gly- glycogen mm-hmm. or whatever? Yeah. You know, if you're not Glucose. burning energy, it's going to store in your fat areas. Right. You know, and whatever area that is. So if you're eating in excess of what you're using, right. that's what's going to start happening. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So if you eat a couple donuts and then... 30 minutes later you go for a bike ride you go for a run i don't even know like i, I would have, i guess a walk would still qualify or maybe yeah. you go work out anything you're, you're probably good that, to go anything it's to use that energy yeah it's going to use know, that energy from the food right because your food is basically energy but if you eat the donuts have like two or three then you lay on the couch or maybe you're sitting at an office desk you yeah. know you go to your office you sit in your desk for like eight hours yeah then probably going to be stored in a right. non-healthy way. Right. In a fat way. Right. So basically, to break it down as simple as possible, from my understanding, and I'm not a doctor, but this is my interpretation of right. what we're reading here. Um, you know, if you're using up your, let's just say you have, you know, let's just say your maintenance, and maintenance calories mean that's the amount of calories you eat to maintain your weight. You know what I'm saying? So for me, my maintenance is about 2,600 calories. Mm-hmm. So let's say I eat 2,600 calories. Some of those are donuts. Some of those are other things. It doesn't matter. It's all energy. You know what I'm saying? Right. The micro, the macronutrients do matter, but we're just talking about total calories right now. So it's like if I have 2,600 calories as maintenance and I eat 2,600, my body's going to be basically staying the same weight. Now your body composition can change depending on how you're working out and things like that, which Mm -hmm. means if I have muscle and then I'm just like, you know, working out differently, my body might let go of that muscle. That muscle might deteriorate. Yeah. But let's just say I'm training, you know, whatever, like I always do. I'm just at maintenance calories. If I'm eating at maintenance calories, my body's going to be burning what it needs to burn and storing what it needs to store. You see what I'm saying? Right. And I shouldn't really gain any weight or anything. Mm Mm-hmm. If I'm eating less calories, obviously my body's probably going to start releasing more fat to be burned as energy, which is why we go into a fat loss phase. Yeah. You know, now if I'm eating more calories than my body's using, my body has to decide what to do with that energy. So if I'm working out, that energy might be going to useful things. But if I'm not, if I'm not putting those calories to work, then my body's going to start storing it as fat basically. And then once my subcutaneous fat gets full, it's going to store it in other places, mm. which is that visceral fat, that bad fat. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So mm. I'm trying to dumb it down like that. Yeah. So basically if you eat the donut and now you're not doing anything with the energy that you're putting in, then it could be stored as bad fat mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be a donut. It could be a banana. Yeah. You know, it could be other things, but uh donuts, you know, for me, uh, myself, I'll eat stuff like that generally around my workouts if I eat those types of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A little bit of ice cream at nighttime. You know? Uh-huh. What? Oh, but are you burning the ice cream Cookies off? Cookies and cream ice cream? Oh. oh. I'm definitely burning it. All right. So anyway, hopefully everyone understands the difference between like this visceral fat and then like the fat that, because you need fat. 
like fat's good for you yeah yeah you yeah, know yeah but the visceral fat is where it's bad where you have excess fat going mm -hmm. into your system mm -hmm. and it's getting stored in other places mm -hmm. remember that subcutaneous fat is the fat beneath your skin layer that's that's good once that fills up though like you see pee -pee people with the poofy skin mm -hmm. like their skin's kind of poofy mm -hmm. you know to me that's like okay they're starting to they're on the brink of reach their body is like starting to move fat other places mm -hmm. and you may seem like a uh you know aesthetically good to go person but you could have more visceral fat you know than is healthy for you mm -hmm. you know moving on here individual fat storage capacity seems to be influenced by genetic factors there are other factors at play here as well but this explains in part why some people can be obese but metabolically healthy while others can appear skinny while still walking around with three or more markers of metabolic syndrome. I think it's an important note. Remember we talked about that metabolic syndrome. Just because you're skinny, for example, doesn't mean you're metabolically healthy. Doesn't mean your body's operating like it, like it should. Just because you're obese doesn't mean you're metabolically unhealthy, right? It's these people who are most at risk according to research by Mitch Lazar at the University of Pennsylvania because a thin person may simply have a much lower capacity to safely store fat. All these things being equal, someone who carries a bit of body fat may also have a greater fat storage capacity and thus more metabolic leeway than someone who appears to be more lean. Yeah. So breaking it down to yeah. genetics, yeah. you could naturally be that skinny person but that means your body may not really know how to store fat properly just because of your genetics. Mm -hmm. So even if you're skinny, you may have more visceral fat, yeah. which would you know, make you metabolically unhealthy mm -hmm. if you got some of those markers we were talking about. Really boiling it down to it depends on the person, right. I feel like. Exactly. And if you want to know, you'd have to just seek medical You probably advice. would want a doctor that's in line with uh, Medicine yeah. 3.0. Yeah, I guess you got to see the right doctor too. Right, exactly. Um, which again, just, you know, we're not a partner with them, but Merrick Health is the one that I use, and they're they're on online with the Medicine 3.0, thinking they're telehealth. You know yeah, what I'm saying? right. All right, continuing on, he says it doesn't take much visceral fat to cause problems. Remember, visceral fat's that bad fat. Let's say you're a 40 year old man who weighs 200 pounds. If you have 20 percent body fat, making you more or less average. For your age and sex that means you are carrying 40 pounds of fat throughout your body even if just 4.5 pounds of that is visceral fat you would be considered an exceptionally high risk for cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes this is why i insist my patients undergo a dexa scan annually and i am far more interested in their visceral fat than their total body fat you know what a dexa scan is no basically a scan of your body that can tell you all these details of the way your body stores different things full body scan pretty much yeah so it's giving you you know your fat percentages where your visceral fat's at stuff like that i'm so, guessing you did one when you had your blood work done no I, I, that's something i got to get done mm -hmm. but they scan it like they just scan you or like how, do you know how it works uh basically it's like a machine oh uh, is it like an mri thing i'm like, assuming it's kind of like that yeah you, you just through. go into the machine they scan you and then you get all the information after that damn but real quick i just wrote this down so we can talk about it later 
he's starting to get into some things he recommends. Mm -hmm. So he said DEXA scan annually. Right. So you can look at your visceral fat. I'm far more interested in visceral fat than total body fat. That's what he cares about. See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Notice also he said uh, if you have 20% body fat, 40-year-old man, you're average. That means you're carrying 40 pounds of fat if you weigh 200 pounds. Right. All right, continuing on. Are we good to go on the fat? We understand the fat. Yeah, we're good. He says, insulin resistance is a term that we hear a lot, but what does it really mean? Technically, it means that cells, initially muscle cells, have stopped listening to insulin signals. Um, let's see if I can dumb this down a little bit. Another way to visualize this is to imagine the cell as a balloon being blown up with air. Eventually, the balloon expands to the point where it gets more difficult to force more air inside. You have to blow harder and harder. This is where insulin comes in to help facilitate the process of blowing air into the balloon. So basically, insulin is, you know, something that uh, signals to your body of uh, putting things where they need to go. Basically, mm -hmm. nutrients in your body. Yeah. So if you have insulin resistance, that means your body's not operating properly. Mm. Bottom line. Uh, hopefully, that, hopefully that dumbs it down a little bit. Uh, he said, when insulin resistance begins to develop, the train is already well down the path toward type 2 diabetes. Uh, let's, let's see. Continuing on. One quick note. Diabetes ranks as only the seventh or eighth leading cause of death in the United States behind things like kidney disease, accidents, and Alzheimer's disease. Patients with diabetes have a much greater risk of cardiovascular disease as well as cancer and al Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. One could argue that diabetes with re related metabolic dysfunction is one thing that all these conditions have in common. This is why I place such an emphasis on metabolic health. Why is this epidemic happening now? The simplest explanation is that our metabolism, as it has evolved over millennia, is not equipped to cope with our ultra-modern diet, which has appeared only within the last century or so. Evolution is no longer our friend, because our environment has changed much faster than our genome ever could. Evolution wants us to get fat when nutrients are abundant. The more energy we could store in our ancestral past, the greater our chances of survival and successive reproduction. So we're going to pause right there. He does keep bringing this up. You know, he talks about evolution, which is how, you know, the environment or anything changes over time. Um, and he does also bring up several times in the book, like our ancestors, how they operated, you know, hunter gatherers, things like that. And let's just say you think way back when people are like living in the wild and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, you know, you need more body fat. You need to store more body fat because you have to be able to operate without food sometimes, yeah. you know, or to stay warm, things like that. But he's saying it's a problem because our modern world, we don't really have those problems anymore. Right. But we have a bunch of freaking food. Yeah. And a bunch <laughs> of energy. Yeah. All right. He says, uh, yeah, I'll just read this here. We needed to be able to endure periods of time without much food and natural se selection obliged, endowing us with genes that helped us conserve and store energy in the form of fat that enabled our distant ancestors to survive periods of famine, cold climates, and psychologic stressors such as illness and pregnancy. 
But these genes have proved less advantageous in our present environment, where many people in the developed world have access to almost unlimited calories. Another problem is that not only all these calories is... Backing it up. Another problem is that not all of these calories are created equal and not all of them are metabolized in the same way. One abundant source of calories in our present diet, fructose, also turns out to be a very powerful driver of metabolic dysfunction if consumed to excess. But as it turns out, we humans have a unique capacity for turning calories from fructose into fat. <clears throat> and fructose is uh, basically some type of sugar. Right. Um, but he's saying that humans have a unique capacity for turning fructose directly into fat, mm. you know, yeah. however it works out scientifically, you know. Continuing on, thanks to the miracles of modern food technology, we are almost literally swimming in a sea of fructose, especially in the form of soft drinks but also hidden in more innocent-seeming foods like bottled salad dressing and yogurt cups. Whatever form it takes, fructose does not pose a problem when consumed the way our ancestors did, before sugar became a commodity, mostly in the form of actual fruit. It is very difficult to get fat from eating too many apples, for example, because the fructose in the apple enters our system relatively slowly, mixed with fiber and water, and our gut and our metabolism can handle it normally. But if we are drinking quarts of apple juice, it's a different story. So he has a, he goes on this rant about juices. <laughs> right. Juices like fruit juices. And he's like, the fructose in the fruit juice is way too much, too much concentration. Your body doesn't know how to process it. Mm. So he's basically saying, eat fruit not drinking fruit juices interesting that's like a big thing he harps on for a while here even orange juice yeah even orange juice mm, interesting i think if you do it in balance that's okay you know i drink myself i drink 100 milliliters of uh cranberry juice mixed with 100 it. milliliters of orange juice in the in the morning mm -hmm. that's literally hardly any juice at all right that's the only juice i drink mm -hmm. um but you know there are people that are just chugging they got big cups of apple juice big cups of orange juice whatever well also yeah. it's like they well i feel like a common thing is like hey just like orange juice is good for you drink it in the morning you know so like people drink it every day with their breakfast or right. whatever you know or like, like apple juice like he mentioned earlier the dose hey yeah uh, the dose comes into so it so i mean if you drink like a 12 ounce which is like a normal cup like a 8 to 12 ounces of orange juice every day or apple juice every day or like grape juice, like grape Gatorade. Juice. Grape juice is good. Yeah, I man. If you're drinking Gatorade without working out, you know, I guess it goes back to the energy thing. Right. If you're drinking Gatorade and working hard, mm -hmm. which is Gatorade's meant for athletes, right? Like people who work hard, right? You know, like they're good to go. Well, but if you're drinking, drinking them and then going to the office, right. or you're drinking it and you're just laying around or you know watching TV, I right. mean, it's not gonna help you out. I know he brings up uh, soft drinks too, like soda. Mm. which is obviously people i feel like most people know like soda is not great for you people are drinking it but all people love soda because it yeah. tastes good yeah. you know yeah like people who just are like i need a diet coke mm. you know <laughs> it's mm. like yeah all right yeah but i know a lot of people like who have cut soda out of their diet and they lose an extreme amount of fat right you know like just uh, by changing that one thing 
Well, I know, like, I'm a big fan of, uh, like, Post Malone. He's, like, an artist. Like, mm-hmm. if, I'm sure most people know him. He's pretty... He's on Joe fa- Rogan fairly, He was on Joe Rogan. Yeah. He talked about he cut soda out of his diet, and he lost, like, 40 pounds or yeah, something that like that. Yeah. And, and it, it looked like, if you look at him from, like, three years ago to today, mm-hmm. he's definitely way more skinnier. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Probably than, feels better, too. Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, and... Me and you have cut, I cut soda out a long time ago. Yeah. Because it was actually, I don't know what it was, but it seemed to give me migraines mm. when I drank soda. If I drank like two Cokes a day, yeah, it would give me like a crazy headache. I don't know. I've never, still to this day, I've never figured it out, but uh, I cut it out of my diet because of that and mm. I haven't, I don't get those headaches anymore. Mm. So I don't know what that was, but. Yeah. Um, what do you drink like in a day? Like if I, mean, I mostly on, just on drink water. <laughs> I mostly just drink water. What about a Jocko? I drink a Jocko. I drink a Monster. <laughs> you know, I know you're not happy about that. I drink a Celsius. You know, I drink coffee. coffee. I'm not. What are those other things you guys drink? What's that called? Oh, I drink LaCroix. Yeah. That's okay. sparkling water. Oh, okay. That's just like, it's just water. Yeah. It's like naturally essenced. Yeah. Um, I wonder what like a lot of people drink throughout the day. I mean, a lot of people drink soda. I know that think for so? a fact, dude. Still? A lot of people still. Mm-hmm. I well, think, you see I think all the, more you see like are, construction workers walking out of a gas station. They got the big fountain drink. Yeah, they'll do. The, I mean, they're yeah, chugging yeah. that stuff. But look at the most. A lot of construction workers are overweight. They I got feel bellies like. on them. They got a little belly they on got them. Bellies on them. But I feel like if you're a construction worker, you're in the sun for like twelve out ten hours but a day. You are eating a lot, but you're probably still eating more than you're actually burning. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. But if you drink like a Gatorade, you're probably good to go. But it also depends on the work you're doing. Like if you drink a what's the purpose Gatorade of drinking the Gatorade and you, and you sit? Well, it's like electrolytes, right? Right. But you can get electrolytes yeah. other ways without the fructose in it. You know? Yeah. So. I mean, I guess it just like I said depends on the person. Yeah. But if you drink one and then you go sit on the forklift for ten hours, <laughs> yeah, then it's like it. you're not burning the energy. Right. You know? Right. Exactly. Even if you're so. sweating, you're still not burning it enough. But I mean, there are, you know, if we're staying on the construction worker topic for people who are outside, you know, ideally on their feet and stuff, you Mm -hmm. know, I know like machines are a thing, but like there are construction workers who go to gas stations, eat the gas station food because it's convenient. But I know that there are ones that make their lunch, take their lunch box with them to work. You can definitely do that, you know, but the convenience, takes more effort. (laughs) I think the convenience thing is like what Dr. Atiyah is talking about. It's kind of like plagued our world. Mm -hmm. It's too easy to get food fast. You know what I'm saying? And also like anybody, like you talk about a service industry, like let's just say your AC contractor, Mm -hmm. he's driving around all day, going to different people's houses. What's he going to do for food? He's going to stop at Arby's on the way. He's going to stop at Burger King between between places yeah you know there's other ways to do it you can prepare prepare your food you can go into a grocery store and get like deli meat or whatever but you have to plan those out better mm-hmm. yeah, and even yeah. deli meat's going to have fructose or uh yeah a lot of deli meats mm-hmm. are going to have some kind of fructose in it to make it taste better i mean if you can't avoid it then you know yeah. do, do your best to burn minimize that energy it. you know burn or the energy or, and or minimize, whatever minimize you your know. exposure or make sure that you're doing it within reason you know if you care about it yeah. you know Continuing on here, he says, consuming more, consuming large quantities of liquid fructose simply overwhelms the ability of the gut to handle it. The excess is shunned to the liver, where many of those calories are likely to end up as fat. I've seen patients work themselves into NAFLD by drinking too many healthy fruit smoothies for the same reason. They are taking in too much fructose too quickly. 
Thus, the almost infinite availability of liquid fructose in our already high-calorie modern diet sets us up for metabolic failure if we're not careful, and especially if we are not physically active. So I think right here he's even saying if you drink too much at one time, yeah. it can still be stored as fat, the fructose. Yeah. I just think it's funny because that brings up a point of like the, the smoothies, smoothies the dude. Smoothie, <laughs> the smoothie kings or the tropical smoothies or whatever the hell it is. Like, Dude, the smoothies are a But thing. people will go there and be like, it's healthy, but then right. they'll get the extra large. And it's like, right. bro, you right. know what I'm saying? And most of the time, well, I don't know. I don't go to those places because I, I, just, I don't really either. like smoothies that much. Yeah. But like... But it's definitely a thing. People are like smoothies, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. But what he's saying is that the liquid fructose, even, like let's say even if you worked out, he's saying your gut can only handle a certain amount, which means as soon as you exceed that, now it's going to the visceral fat. That's yeah. what he's saying. Yeah, you probably just need to get like the small. So you need to minimize how yeah. much of the liquid fructose you're intaking yeah, based yeah. on what he's saying. From That's my interpretation. Mm-hmm. I just think it's interesting though. Yeah, it know? is. Definitely. It is. And he brought it up. Like when I read this for the first time, I was like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. You know, cause even people with kids, like my kids, you get them the apple juice things. Yeah. yeah it's like yeah. not good. Mm-hmm. Cause they're, you're already setting up their body from an early age to store it improperly. Yeah. You know? So anyway, it gets kind of crazy. Continuing on, he says, We want to intervene before a patient actually develops metabolic syndrome. This means keeping watch for the earliest signs of trouble. In my patients, I monitor several biomarkers related to metabolism, keeping a watchful eye for things like elevated uric acid, elevated homocysteine, chronic inflammation, and even mildly elevated ALT liver enzymes. Lipoproteins, which we will discuss in detail in the next chapter, are also important, especially triglycerides. I watch the ratio of triglycerides to HDL cholesterol. It should be less than 2 to 1, or better yet, less than 1 to 1, as well as levels of VLDL, a lipoprotein that carries triglycerides, all of which may show up years before a patient would meet the textbook definition of metabolic syndrome. Do you... Excuse me. These biomarkers will help give us a clearer picture of a patient's overall metabolic health than HbA1c, which is not very specific by itself. So H HbA1c, I believe, is a certain test. But anyway, getting a little sciencey. Yeah, trying to trying to alleviate the science. So what I'm pulling out of this, he he gave several markers to keep an eye out for. And then uh, he said, basically, ratio of triglycerides to HDL cholesterol should be less than 2 to 1, better yet, less than 1 to 1. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on, he says, It will hopefully become clear to you, as it is to me, that the logical first step in our quest to delay death is to get our metabolic house in order. The good news is that we have tremendous agency over this. Changing how we exercise, what we eat, and how we sleep can completely turn the tables in our favor. The bad news is that these things require effort to escape the default modern environment that has conspired against our ancient and formerly helpful fast storage genes genes by overfeeding and undermoving and undersleeping us all. So those are like the main issues that we have in today's world. Un- overfeeding too much food, undermoving, not moving enough. Undersleeping, not sleeping enough. Mm. 
He's saying the bad news is these things require effort because most people don't want to put forth effort. Yeah. You know, but if you're one of the people that are ready to make change and put some effort into it, we're going to go through, you know, what he's talking about, exercising, eating, sleeping properly Mm -hmm. to change things for our favor. Yeah. Right. All right. The next chapter uh, was a pretty big hitter for me. It's called The Ticker. It's about. Uh, confronting and preventing heart disease, which is the deadliest killer on the planet. So I have some pretty lengthy sections in here highlighted, but I think it's important because when I read this, my mind was blown and obviously uh, changed the way I'm operating. Right. All right, so starting out, he says, Globally, heart disease and stroke, which I lumped together under, under the single heading of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or ASCVD, represent the leading cause of death, killing an estimated 2,300 people every day in the United States, according to the CDC, more than any other cause, including cancer. So, I mean, yeah. big deal. You know, a, lot, a lot of people, if you go back and track your family, you'll see that this has been a problem. And he does put in the book, this is a big problem for his family. Like, mm-hmm. historically, his family has huge cardiovascular issues. Right. The fundamental problem, I believe, is classic medicine 2.0. Guidelines for managing cardiovascular risk are based on an overly short time horizon compared to the timeline of the disease. We need to begin treating it and preventing it much earlier. Bluntly put, this should be the 10th leading cause of death, not the first. Which means if we had changed the way that we're operating, it wouldn't be that bad of a killer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now we're going to talk about cholesterol, which is like a hot topic, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) It's practically a dirty word, cholesterol. Your doctor will probably utter it with a frown, because as everyone knows, cholesterol is evil stuff. Well, some of it is. You know the LDL or the bad cholesterol, which is inevitably counterpoised against the HDL or good cholesterol. I practically need to be restrained when I hear these terms because they're so meaningless. And your total cholesterol, the first number that people offer up when we're talking about heart disease, is only slightly more relevant to your cardiovascular risk than the color of your eyes. So let's hit rewind and look at what cholesterol really is, what it does, and how it contributes to heart disease. So cholesterol is such a hot topic. I did decide to get some details on this in here. Cholesterol is essential to life. Because cholesterol belongs to the lipid family, that is fats, it is not water-soluble and thus cannot dissolve in our plasma like glucose or sodium and travel freely through our circulation. So it must be carted around in tidy, tiny spherical particles called lipoproteins, the final L in LDL and HDL, which act like little cargo submarines. These lipoproteins are part lipid inside and part protein outside. So I'm getting sciencey here. Bear with me. A little sciencey. The protein is essentially the vessel that allows them to travel in our plasma while carrying their water-insoluble cargo of lipids, including cholesterol, triglycerides, and other phospholipids, plus vitamins and other proteins that need to be distributed to our distant tissues. So... They're getting carried around in our blood by, yeah. these, by these proteins, mm-hmm. right? The reason why they're called high and low density lipoproteins, HDL, 
high-density lipoprotein, and LDL, low-density lipoprotein, has to do with the amount of fat relative to protein that each one carries. LDL carries more lipids, while HDL carries more protein in relation to fat and are therefore more dense. Also, these particles and other lipoproteins frequently exchange cargo with one another, which is part of what drives me crazy about labeling them good and bad. When an HDL transfers its good cholesterol to an LDL particle, does that cholesterol suddenly become bad? The answer is no, because it's not the cholesterol per se that causes problems, but the nature of the particle in which it's transported. Each lipoprotein particle is enwrapped by one or more large molecules called apolipoproteins that provide structure, stability, and most importantly, solubility to the particle. HDL particles are wrapped in a type of molecule called apolipoprotein A, or APOA for short, while LDL is encased in an apolipoprotein B, or APOB for short. This distinction may seem trivial, but it goes to the very root cause of atherosclerotic disease. Every single lipoprotein that contributes to atherosclerosis, which is cardiovascular disease, not only LDL but several others, carries this ApoB protein signature. So I lost you there because yeah. of the science. But science basically, here. you know, people talk about HDL, LDL, cholesterol, right? HDL and LDL are basically the cargo ships that carry cholesterol through your body. Mm-hmm. Um, LDL is encased in this ApoB, right, which provides the structure, the stability, and the solubility to the LDL, which is how you transport things around. So um, bottom line, we'll get here in a second, but ApoB is what you really want to be paying attention to. Not HDL, not LDL, but what is the ApoB in your blood? Gotcha. Another major misconception about heart disease is that somehow caught that it is somehow caused by the cholesterol that we eat in our diet. According to this dated and simplistic view, eating cholesterol-rich foods causes a so-called bad cholesterol <clears throat> to accumulate in our blood and then build up on our artillery wa- art- artery walls, as if you poured bacon grease down the kitchen drain every time you made breakfast. Sooner or later, your sink will back up. The humble egg in particular was singled out in a 1968 proclamation by the American Heart Disease accused of causing heart heart disease because of its high cholesterol content. It has remained in nutritional purgatory for decades, even after the reams of research papers showing that dietary cholesterol, and particularly egg consumption, may not have much to do with heart disease at all. Eating lots of saturated fat can increase levels of atherosclerosis causing lipoproteins in blood. But most of the actual cholesterol that we eat in our food ends up being excreted out our backsides. The vast majority of the cholesterol in our circulation is actually produced by our own cells. Nevertheless, U.S. dietary guidelines warned Americans away from consuming foods high in cholesterol for decades and nutrition labels still inform American consumers about how much cholesterol is contained in each serving of packaged foods. So pausing there real quick. Basically he's saying the cholesterol that you eat in food doesn't really matter. 
because most of that's just going to be excreted by your body. Right. So dietary cholesterol, cholesterol you eat in your food doesn't really matter. Mm. It's the cholesterol that your body's making mm. itself. Okay. He said the famed nutrition scientist Ansel Keys was one of the founding fathers of the notion that saturated fat causes heart disease. He knew this was, or he knew that uh, cholesterol from your diet was nonsense. The problem he recognized was that much of the basic research into cholesterol and heart disease had been conducted in rabbits, which have a unique ability to absorb cholesterol into their blood from their food and form atherosclerotic plaques from it. The mistake was to assume that humans also absorb dietary cholesterol as readily. There's no connection whatsoever between cholesterol and food and cholesterol and blood. Cholesterol in the diet doesn't matter at all unless you happen to be a chicken or a rabbit. It took nearly two more decades before the advisory committee responsible for the U.S. government dietary guidelines finally conceded in 2015 that cholesterol is not a nutrient of concern for overconsumption. I'm glad we settled that. That's what he said. Mm. So again, bottom line, you got to look at these studies too. Like if you're really into this, you know, I'm glad that people like him dumb it down for us. (laughs) But, uh, you know, a lot of these studies that tell us that cholesterol in our food is bad. There are studies done on rabbits and rabbits bodies operate different than ours does. Right. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But now we understand cholesterol in your food does not matter as far as causing issues with cholesterol in your blood. But what does matter is saturated fat. If you intake more saturated fat, that can cause, uh, you know, problems as far as uh, cholesterol levels go and, and uh, heart disease and stuff like that. Yeah. All right. He said, the final myth we need to confront is the notion that cardiovascular disease primarily strikes old people and that therefore we don't need to worry about prevention in patients who are in their 20s and 30s. This is not true. In men, one quarter of all events occurs before age 54. Atherosclerosis, heart disease, is a slow-moving, sneaky disease. The risk builds throughout our lives, and the critical factor is time. Anyway, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot. What do you got on that one, Ben? What, what is, what's your bottom line there? I mean, it's, this is not something that... I'm normally paying attention to cholesterol. Most people aren't. Yeah. So I mean, do I have a uh uh like a actual opinion on it? I I feel like I just don't observe it enough or pay attention enough to it to have like a a stance on it, mm-hmm. you know, but I know it is something that's brought up like oh your cholesterol's high mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever all the other cases are, mm-hmm. you know. Um so I mean, just from what he's saying, it's just like a lot of information. Yeah, it's a lot of information. But I mean, from what he's saying at the end there, you know, like it's, he's saying like even in your twenties and thirties, like just go ahead and start prepping now or like, you know, pay attention to it now, not prepping, adjust your protocols. Right. Because saturated fat can affect it. Right. You know, but also there's a genetic factor. Mm -hmm. Like I know that in our family, our mom's side of the family has heart disease in its history. Right. Which when we get to the end of this chapter, I'll talk about my, my blood test and what it revealed. Right. But, uh, you know, basically eating foods that are supposedly high in cholesterol, that doesn't matter. Right. So make sure you're eating your eggs, right. You know, make sure you're eating your red meat, but you do have to be concerned about saturated fat 
which means if you're eating red meat, you want leaner yeah. red meat. Right. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You shouldn't eat two dozen eggs a day, you know, but two eggs a day gets you those micronutrients mm-hmm. you know, stuff yeah. like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but we do care about saturated fat. We do care about ApoB. We don't really care about, I don't want to say we don't really care about, but HDL yeah. and LDL are what most people are tracking. That's less of a concern, yeah. right? ApoB is what you want to track. All right. Continuing on. Particles tagged with ApoA, which is your HDL, can cross the endothelial barrier easily in both directions, in and out. An endothelial barrier, let's just say you have a blood vessel, right? The skin of that vessel is your endothelial layer. So the ApoA can cross that and go in and out of your blood, which means as your blood vessel is delivering nutrients to your to your muscle, for example, ApoA can go through there, okay? Mm-hmm. LDL particles and other particles with the ApoB protein are far more prone to getting stuck inside. So they get, the ApoB gets stuck in there, which causes problems, okay? Right. This is what actually makes HDL particles potentially good and LDL particles potentially bad, not the cholesterol, but the particles that carry it. The trouble starts when LDL particles stick in the arterial wall and subsequently become oxidized, meaning the cholesterol and phospholipid molecules they contain come into contact with a highly reactive molecule known as a reactive oxygen species that causes the oxidative stress. It's the oxidation of the lipid on the LDL that kicks off the entire atherosclerotic cascade so basically i'm going to just dumb this down you get like an apob particle in your blood it's traveling through your blood it's like the ldl is carrying nutrients throughout your body it gets stuck into your blood vessel wall right as it's trying to pass through the wall to deliver things to different parts of your body right that gets stuck in the arterial wall it becomes oxidized and basically hardens a little bit mm-hmm. that's where the problem is because then more will get stuck sorry you there. start getting clogged right right, right. Clogged more up. will get stuck there yeah all right uh dumbing it down again basically once you have one stuck other ones are kind of attracted to it they get stuck as well mm. so then they all so then it's like a clump of them a little build up right little build up mm-hmm. um so then he brings up that you have to maintain health of your blood vessel walls as well, right? So he says that smoking, high blood pressure, they call damage to the endothelium, which is your blood vessel wall. Right. Smoking damages it chemically, while high blood pressure does it mechanically. So basically, if you have high blood pressure, you got a lot of like fluid pumping through your blood vessels. The pressure is more than what your uh, blood ve- blood vessel wall can technically handle so it starts to degrade it over time yeah see yeah, what i'm saying that makes sense yeah. which if it's degraded that means that you're more at risk of the apob particles getting stuck there causing more problems creating clumps creating cloggages and you get a problem then you got more of a problem later yeah. which can result in a heart attack later right you know? mm-hmm. all right so i'm trying to dumb it down yeah yeah it is a lot of science He says, I've been saying LDL, but the key factor here is actually exposure to ApoB over time. 
So to gauge the true extent of your risk, we have to know how many of these ApoB particles are circulating in your bloodstream. That number is much more relevant than the total quantity of cholesterol that these particles are carrying. If you take a healthy coronary artery and expose it to high enough concentrations of ApoB particles over a long enough time, a certain amount of LDL and VDL, VLDL, will get stuck in that endothelial space and become oxidized. So basically, if you, if you have a bunch of ApoB moving through your blood, you know, obviously it's only a matter of time before some are starting to get stuck on the wall. Yeah. Right. And causing problems. Mm -hmm. So you want to pay attention to your ApoB. Right. Okay. All right. There's some more sciencey stuff. I'm going to skip through that. Um, he does say that we want to increase the functionality of the particles. We don't know how to do that yet, but that's what we're going toward in science. Mm. Right. All right. I wonder how you would do that. <laughs> Or what they're even looking no at. They're looking at it, you know. Mm -hmm. All right. Then he brought up uh, a good thing uh, that I think is important for people to know as part of your longevity stuff. Um, but you basically got CT scans. Mm -hmm. So if you want to see what your arteries, you know, if there's cloggages, if there's things, uh, if there's buildup, right, in any of your arteries or blood vessels, the best way to do that is to get a CT angiogram. You could also get a CT scan, uh, like a, uh, what, what's he called? Calcium, calcium score. That doesn't really give you a good indicator, but if you really want to know what's going on of potential damages to your blood, blood vessels and stuff like that, you want to go for a CT angiogram. Mm. Okay. So, uh, for me, I'm trying to get one <clears throat> myself a little bit more difficult because I'm so young. They're mm. like, you don't need one. Uh, you know they're I'm saying? trying to stop you right? Met, the med medical community is like, you don't need one. You're too young. I'm like, I want it. Yeah. And he detailed in the book when he was in his 30s, he was fighting with his doctors to get one done too. He eventually got one done. Interesting that they're fighting you on it. Right. My telehealth doctor can't help me with it because he's telehealth. I have to go through a local doctor to get that. Mm -hmm. You know. Interesting. Anyway, CT angiogram is how you're going to be looking at your blood vessels to see if there is any buildup anywhere. So they're only using it for older people? Basically, like I think, after I a think, certain uh, age. Yeah, or if you have like a indicator, like if you get a test done, oh, yeah, like a blood it, test, yeah. and they're like, oh, this is this is high. Yeah. And then now we're going to do one or whatever, you know? Interesting. All right. Um, he says, I take a very hard line on lowering ApoB, the particle that causes all of this trouble. In short, get it as low as possible, as early as possible. Okay, so we know ApoB is the problem. So you want to get it as low as possible, as early as possible. Specifically in the book, he mentions you want it less than 60, ideally closer to 30 if you can. Mm. ApoB, less than 60, ideally closer to 30. Mm -hmm. He also mentions another... Uh, particle it's called lp little a all right it's another lipoprotein but basically this is something that you can't really affect that well but uh it is an indicator of of heart risk you know what i'm saying or cardiovascular risk and uh it's mostly genetic so you can get your lp little a tested and you usually need to do it just once in your life to know your risk you know what i'm saying yeah 
Uh, like there was a guy, he brought up a story. He, do, he does tell a lot of stories in, in the book about different patients that he's been with and people that he's, that he's worked with. But there was a guy that had low everything, low, uh, you know, cholesterol, all that. They tested his LP little a, it was super high genetically. And they took, they were able to take action. Mm. Right. But he says in the book that because you can't really target LP little a by itself, they're working on, uh, pharma, pharmacological medications to help with that. But because that's not around right now, you have to focus on lowering your ApoB. Mm. Okay. So the only real treatment for elevated LP little a right now is aggressive management of ApoB overall. Mm. So anyway, trying to dumb that down, but the main things you're looking at your ApoB your LP little a, your LP little a is more of your genetic indicator of your risk. Right. Okay. All right. So now we're getting into how to reduce cardiovascular risk. Three blind spots of medicine 2.0 when it comes to dealing with atherosclerotic disease or cardiovascular disease. First, an overly simplistic view of lipids that fails to understand the importance of total lipoprotein burden, APOB, and how much one needs to reduce it in order to truly reduce risk. Second, a general lack of knowledge about other bad actors such as LP little a. And third, a failure to fully grasp the lengthy time course of atherosclerotic disease and the implications this carries if we seek true prevention. When I look at a patient's blood panel for the first time, my eyes immediately dart to two numbers, ApoB and LP little a. I think you can't lower ApoB too much, provided there are no side effects from treatment. You want it as low as possible. If we all maintained the ApoB levels we had when we were ba- when we were babies, there wouldn't be enough heart disease on the planet for people to know what it is. The total amount of cholesterol contained in all of our lipoproteins, not just LDL, but also HDL and VLDL, represents only about 10 to 15% of our body's total pool of cholesterol. The first order of business is to reduce the burden of ApoB particles. We must also pay attention to other markers of risk, notably those associated with metabolic health, such as insulin, visceral fat, and homocysteine, an amino acid that is in high concentrations, is strongly associated with increased risk of heart attack, stroke, and dementia. All right, pausing right there, uh, just breaking it down. Basically, ApoB is what we really care, care about. We want to lower that as much as possible. Yeah. I talked earlier about the numbers he gave specifically, which were get it lower than 60, as close to 30 or lower than 30 if possible. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, earlier we mentioned that smoking and high blood pressure both can uh, affect your blood vessels and their walls directly so we want to pay attention to that um, let's see he gives some examples of some stuff that he went through okay let's pause real quick All right, continuing on. 
He said that about a third to half of people who consume high amounts of saturated fat, which sometimes goes hand in hand with a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet, will experience a dramatic increase in ApoB particles, which we obviously don't want. Mm. The point is to not necessarily limit fat overall, but to shift to fats that promote a better lipid profile, which that's going to depend on the individual. So I did a blood test before the blood test. I was eating basically mostly carnivore diet with some rice and fruit, right? And my ApoB at that time, which was early 2023, was over 90. Oh, wow. Which is super high. You want it at 30, right? You want it at 60, less than 60. Less than 60. Also, my my LP little a number indicate it was high as well, which indicates I have genetic, uh, you probably do too, genetic uh disposition to predisposition yeah to have elevated apob right because lp little a is uh elevated Mm -hmm. so talking to my doctor that's when i went hardcore on the vertical diet immediately after that um i got my next blood test coming up soon so we'll see how the apob has changed but one thing about the vertical diet it focuses on lean red meat Right. Before that, I was eating whatever red meat I could get, mm, you know, okay. the fatty ground beef, the fatty cuts of steak, all that kind of stuff. Now I'm as lean as possible in, in the red meat section. Now I still will eat like 85, 15 ground beef, but I keep it like smaller portions. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So we did that. And then, uh, I also, uh, started taking, uh, uh, a medication to help with ApoB lowering, which mm. we'll talk about here in a second. And in the past, you know, there's a lot of people that are like, you know, so-and-so did this without any medication. So-and-so did that without any medication, whatever. Yeah. But after reading this book, it's like opened my mind to the fact that, hey, sometimes you need some assistance. Yeah. Especially if you're predisposed to struggling, Mm -hmm. you know, with certain things based on your genetic profile, your genetic makeup. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So continuing on. He said, again, the point is not necessary to limit fat, but to shift to fats that promote a better lipid profile, which is going to depend on your genetic factor. So you have to get your ApoB tested to know. Right. Right. You mm-hmm. have to get your LP little a tested to know what your genetic factors are going to be. Yeah. But for many patients, if not most, lowering ApoB to the levels we aim for, the levels found in children, cannot be accomplished with diet alone. So we must use nutritional intervention in tandem with drugs. So nutritional intervention is changing your diet. Like I did, I went hardcore on the vertical diet, Yeah, you know, which the founder of the vertical diet has been talking about this stuff for years as well. Mm, He's okay. been talking about ApoB for years. Yeah, And I did the vertical diet blood panel. So on the Merrick Health website, you can select the vertical diet blood panel and that's the one that has ApoB in it. You know, other ones do too. All right. So now we're talking about medications that can help you lower your apob right these are typically thought of as cholesterol lowering medications but i think we are better served to think about them in terms of increasing apob clearance enhancing the body's ability to get apob out of circulation that's really our goal so that's what we're focused on apob getting it out of our bloodstream right yeah he says medicine 3.0 takes a much longer view and more importantly, seeks to identify and eliminate the primary causative agent in the disease process. This is ApoB. <clears throat> so at the end of this chapter about 
cardiovascular and heart disease. He gives a brief overview of lipid lowering medication. So he talks about statins. You know, he uses statins, which are medications specifically for that. He gives a bunch of examples in here. Also, PSK9, PCSK9 inhibitors, right? And all these do different things. He talks about them in the book here. The one that I'm taking is exitamide that basically blocks cholesterol absorption in the GI tract, which depletes the amount of cholesterol in the liver, leading to the increased expression and clearance of ApoB particles, which is what we want. And some of these you can combine with others. But basically, my doctor, Dr. Adam Hotchkiss, you know, I, whenever I met with him after my blood test, we were talking about everything we can change. Again, he's a medicine 3.0 guy. So he doesn't want to take more than anything that's needed. Right. You know? But he takes exitamide himself. He recommends it for the majority of his patients because most people, our, our genetic makeup, we're going to struggle with the ApoB, right? So I'm taking, I don't remember the exact number, but I have a, a very small dose of exetamide that I take every day. Take it with my vitamin, my Jocko Fuel vitamins in the morning. Good to right. go. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Get the ApoB down. Mm -hmm. So I will have a debrief on how my blood work has transpired over the year at our end of year health and fitness podcast. Gotcha. So anyway, that's it for the heart disease for now. What'd you take away from that? ApoB, mm -hmm. lower it. The uh, other particle, the L, whatever. LP little a. LP little a. Not as good as you think. Well, LP little a. Or, I mean, it gives it, you your, yeah. basically your genetic, uh, like if you have a low LP little a, you're probably not going to struggle as much genetically. Right. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So if you had a low LP little a, high ApoB, you could probably do nutritional inter uh, intervention without any assistance from uh, medication. Yeah. to see if you're able to bring it down. Yeah. You probably are better off in that way. If you have a high LP little a, like I do, that means genetically you're going to struggle. You see what mm. I'm saying? So yeah. medical or nutritional intervention is not going to be as effective, mm. which remember for nutrition, we're trying to reduce our saturated fats overall, yeah. right? Which means you want leaner cuts of meat. Yeah. You know, going back to the vertical diet, which we'll talk about, his stance on nutrition here in the book but he doesn't like specific diets or anything that's just what i do you know the mediterranean diet he does specifically mention that in the book that's a very good diet for heart disease risk hmm. but the vertical diet what i do focused on micronutrients yeah so red meat has so many micronutrients you don't want to eliminate it out of the diet so what do you do you uh go to the leaner cuts of meat. Yeah, like the 90 Also, I was like, once I read this and then I had my blood test and I'm like, holy shit, my ApoB is super high. It's 90 something. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be less than 60, yeah. ideally 30. I'm talking to my doctor, Dr. Uh, Hotchkiss, and I'm like, hey dude, should I be cutting eggs out? Because I'm like, I don't know if the fat from eggs is affecting me. He's like, nope, eggs are like so micronutrient dense. You want everything that your eggs are giving you. Yeah. Which I eat two eggs a day. Right. He was like, don't cut those out. We want to maintain that, lower the fats in other ways, mm. right? Interesting. So anyway, you definitely probably want some professional help looking into that, yeah. you know, unless you're good to go the way you are, you know? So anyway, that's heart disease. Definitely the number one killer. Definitely something you want to pay attention to. Yeah. There's so many stories of people that are 40 years old having heart attacks, 50 years old having heart attacks, even if they're in shape. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. They have too much ApoB going on. Maybe they're eating too many fats or something else. It's you know? crazy. 
But whenever I did my blood test and I'm talking to my doctor, you know, we're talking about my diet. I'm like, yeah, basically I eat beef and rice and fruit, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's what I told him. And, uh, you know, and then I said, hey, I want to make changes. I want to get on the path of longevity. And he was like, that's good to hear because the patient I talked to before you, hardcore carnivore, refuses to change the diet and mm -hmm. his apop is out of control Dang. you know what i'm saying yeah so you got to be willing to make a change you got to pay attention to that stuff i mean not to make a change when you know your apop is high right that's crazy well the guy I mean, kinda, we, don't, we don't know who that person was but yeah. maybe they're not in tune with this information yeah maybe, maybe they not. think the doctor doesn't know what he's talking about that's why knows? we're talking about it that's why we're talking about it all right so the next chapter is about cancer all right <clears throat> And unfortunately, I know several people that have cancer right now. You know, it's obviously as you age, it becomes more of a risk. You know, there's also young people that have it too. Yeah. And bottom line, cancer is like your body has some cells that basically turn into cancer cells. So it's actually your own cells, your own body that's turning against you. Yeah. You know, so that's why it's tricky. Yeah. Because it's like your own body. Yeah. Anyway. He starts off, cancer is the second leading cause of death in the United States, right behind heart disease. Together, these two conditions... Stay. All right. Starting off, cancer is the second leading cause of death in the United States, right behind heart disease. Together, these two conditions account for almost one in every two American deaths. The difference is that we understand the genesis and progression of heart disease fairly well, and we have some effective tools with which to prevent and treat it. Oh, shit. How'd this get up so high? Holy shit. How'd that get up so high, dude? I don't know. <laughs> As a result, mortality rates from cardiovascular disease and cerebrovascular disease have dropped by two-thirds since the middle of the 20th century, but cancer still kills Americans at almost exactly the same rate it did 50 years ago. Good. So cancer is a problem, bottom line, and... Uh, we as a society are struggling to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was talking about this with a high-profile client of mine that's mm -hmm. big into the medical industry these days. Right, and uh, she believes that the reason for that is big pharma wants us to wants to keep us on like medication, medication and therapy. Encourage cancer. Right? Or you talking about like rehabilitating cancer? Or you're she's saying that the reason why we're not able to figure out a cure for cancer is because big farmers fighting it. Yeah, because they want to keep people. Huge they want to keep people sick. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. Which uh, you know, Doctor Atia does bring it up a little bit in the book. He he purposely doesn't go into detail on it, but he does bring up big pharma and what you know they're doing to combat certain things that could help people because they want to keep people in certain positions you know what i'm saying i mean i still feel like even if there is a uh you know medication that you can take that would help you beat your cancer at a increased rate you know like there could, is medication they, they could still make insane money off that. there is you medications and stuff that you can take to help you with cancer but it's not going to fix you yeah well i'm you talking about like a kill all 
you know, right. it would obviously like advanced medicine, right. but cancer is also tricky. Like if you read the book, he goes into extreme detail, which I'm not going to go into, but because it's your own cell, it's super hard to fight, mm. you know, because it's literally your own body. You know? Yeah, and I guess there's different ca- types. Like if you so have like a, if you have some kind of disease, it's usually like a foreign cell that's in your body. Yeah, or a sickness, it's a foreign cell, mm-hmm. so your body fights it better. When it's cancer, it's your own cell. Your body doesn't know. So your body doesn't it. really know, yeah. you know, that it's there or whatever. Right. All right. He says, like heart disease, cancer is a disease of aging that is becoming exponentially more prevalent with each decade of life but it can be deadly at almost any age especially middle age by the time cancer is detected however it has already probably been progressing for years and possibly decades the problem we face is that once cancer is established we lack highly effective treatments for it our toolbox is limited many but not all solid tumors can be removed surgically a tactic that dates back to ancient Egypt. Combining surgery and radiation therapy is pretty effective against most local solid tumor cancers. But while we've gotten fairly good at this approach, we have essentially maxed out our ability to treat cancers this way. We are not getting any more juice from the squeeze, and surgery is of limited value when cancer has spread. The second problem is that our ability to detect cancer at an early stage remains very weak far too often we discover tumors only when they cause other symptoms by which point they are often too locally advanced to be removed or worse the cancer is already spread to other parts of the body so basically he's saying number one once cancer is established we have a hard time with an effective treatment for it we can remove surgically tumors you know like breast cancer stuff like that right you know, but once it starts spreading through the body, it's hard to beat. Mm-hmm. The second thing is, we at this point, we struggle to detect it, mm-hmm. which uh, one of his recent podcasts, he did give an updated information on how people are using MRIs to detect cancer, which could be really good, and also blood tests, which he talks a little bit about in here. But anyway, it's very hard to detect it. All right, continuing on, he says, this experience informs our three-part strategy for dealing with cancer. Our first and most obvious wish is to avoid getting cancer at all, like the centenarians. In other words, prevention. But cancer prevention is tricky because if we do not yet fully understand what drives the initiation and progression of the disease. Next is the use of newer and smarter treatments targeting cancer's manifold weaknesses, including the insatiable metabolic hunger of fast-growing cancer cells and their vulnerability to new immune-based therapies. I feel that immunotherapy in particular has enormous promise. Third, and perhaps most importantly, we need to try to detect cancer as early as possible so that our treatments can be deployed more effectively. I advocate early, aggressive, and broad screening for my patients, such as colonoscopy. You know what that is? Oh, I know what that you know is. What <laughs> <laughs> I know what that is. Uh, colonoscopy at age 40 as opposed to the standard recommendation of 45 or 50. So he talks about colonoscopy a lot. It's super easy to get one. It's yeah. super effective. He said by the time you're at 40, get it done. Yeah. 
Because the evidence is overwhelming that it's much easier to deal with most cancers in their early stages, I am also cautiously optimistic about pairing these tried-and-true staples of cancer screening with emerging methods, such as liquid biopsies, which can detect trace amounts of cancer cell DNA via a simple blood test. So he's talking about the new types of therapies coming out mm-hmm. yeah. or detection modules. Yeah. Five decades into the war on cancer, it seems clear that no single cure is likely to be forthcoming. Rather, our best hope likely lies in figuring out better ways to attack cancer on all three of these fronts. Prevention, more targeted and effective treatments, and comprehensive and accurate early detection. So that's what we're focused on. Yeah. All right, moving on. He says, once cancer has spread, the entire game changes. We need to treat it systematically rather than locally. So before it spreads, he mentioned surgery to remove those tumors or whatever. Yeah. Once it spreads, now we're in trouble. Right. He talks about right now, this usually means chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, pretty common. The issue with chemotherapy is that it, it affects all cells. Right. So it doesn't really treat just cancer. It, it literally affects a lot of cells in your body, which is why people that are undergoing chemotherapy, they lose their hair. Yeah. Their nails deteriorate, those types of things. Yeah. He says uh, traditional chemotherapy occupies a fuzzy region between poison and medicine. The drugs attack the. Re- uh, my word here. <laughs> yeah. These drugs attack the replicative cycle of cells and because cancer cells are rapidly dividing the chemo agents harm them more severely than normal cells but many important non-cancerous cells are also dividing frequently such as those in the lining of the mouth and the gut the hair follicles and the nails which is why typical chemotherapy agents cause side effects like hair loss and gastrointestinal misery Mm. so again like we talked about yeah, the chemotherapy is affecting your whole body, right? Yeah. But it's it's trying to get the cancer cells to stop reproducing, but it's also causing yeah. stress with the other parts of your body. Yeah, he said those cancer cells that do manage to survive chemotherapy often end up acquiring mutations that make them stronger, like cockroaches that develop resistance to insecticides. Mm-hmm. So, chemotherapy. Yeah. Works sometimes, but not all the time, which is one of the sucky things about it. It yeah. definitely sucks, yeah. All right. He said, uh, let's see here. It has gotten harder and harder to ignore the link between cancer. Oh, trash guy? I don't know. There was a black cat out back earlier. Yeah, that's the neighborhood cat. No. What's going on out there, Joe? She's just barking a bark. You sure? She's not alert? All right. He said, it has gotten harder and harder to ignore the link between cancer and metabolic dysfunction. In the the 1990s and early 2000s, as rates of smoking and smoking-related cancers declined a new threat emerged to take the place of tobacco smoke. Obesity and type 2 diabetes were snowballing into national and then global epidemics. They seem to be driving increased risk for many types of cancer. 
The American Cancer Society reports that excess weight is a leading risk factor for both cancer cases and deaths, second only to smoking. Globally, about 12 to 13% of all cancer cases are thought to be attributed to obesity. Obesity itself is strongly associated with 13 different types of cancer. Type 2 diabetes also increases the risk of certain cancers, by as much as double in some cases. In extreme obesity, which is a BMI of greater than or equal to 40, is associated with a 52% greater risk of death from all cancers in men and 62% in women. So we talked about obesity earlier. Here he's saying that it is directly linked to cancer risk. Mm. Right? Interesting. He said, I suspect that the association between obesity, diabetes, and cancer is primarily driven by inflammation and growth factors such as insulin. Obesity, especially when accompanied by accumulation of visceral fat, which we talked about earlier, right. helps promote inflammation as dying fat cells secrete an array of inflammatory ketones into the circulation. This chronic inflammation helps create an environment that could induce cells to become cancerous. It also contributes to the development of insulin resistance, causing insulin levels to creep upwards. And insulin is a bad actor in cancer metabolism. Mm. So anyway, breaking it down, he mentioned specifically obesity is uh, strongly associated with cancer. Also, he brought up again visceral fat, yeah. which we talked about earlier. Yeah. So in my head, visceral fat is one of those things we want to pay attention to. Yeah. want to reduce that. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Also, he keeps bringing up insulin, right? Uh, things like that inflammation so to me it's like metabolic health yeah you know so going back to that list of five things if we have three out of five we are in metabolic uh, syndrome we don't want to be metabolically unhealthy right you know what i'm saying yeah all right yeah everything from the front half of the book is starting to come into play the front half is the strategy the overarching strategy now we're kind of learning about these horsemen Mm -hmm. you know um he goes into some detail about immunotherapy. Uh, he did talk about, before that, I'm, I'm trying to keep this as simple as possible. He basically said that one of his patients was using chemotherapy in addition to um, fasting, but paying attention to protein, and that seemed to help her. Hmm. So he said that, um, let me just read this real quick. I'm keeping it dumb down here. Other types of dietary interventions have been found to help improve the effectiveness of chemotherapy while limiting its collateral damage to healthy tissues. Work by Walter Longo of the University of South Carolina, uh, South Cal- Southern California. Yeah, not, not South, South Carolina. Carolina yeah. <laughs> and others have found that fasting or fasting like or a fasting-like diet increases the ability of normal cells to resist chemotherapy while rendering cancer cells more vulnerable to the treatment. It may seem counterintuitive to recommend fasting to cancer patients, but researchers have found that it caused no major adverse events in chemotherapy patients. And in some cases, it may have improved the patient's quality of life. A randomized trial in 131 cancer patients undergoing chemotherapy found that those who were placed on a fasting mimicking diet Basically, a very low-calorie diet designed to provide essential nutrients 
while reducing feelings of hunger, were more likely to respond to chemotherapy and feel better physically and emotionally. This flies in the face of traditional practice, which is to try to get patients on chemotherapy to eat as much as they can tolerate, typically in the form of high-calorie and even high-sugar diets. So, I mean, it's pretty important, I think, that, you know, this is, this is coming out to understand it could benefit people on chemotherapy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? He says that uh, more studies need to be done, but the working hypothesis is that because cancer cells are so metabolically greedy, they're therefore more vulnerable than normal cells to reduction in nutrients. So he's saying that because cancer cells want more nutrients, they, they try to take more. If you reduce your calories, it makes them more vulnerable to chemotherapy treatment. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, he said there's rarely only one way to treat a cancer successfully, which is why he's saying that, hey, nutritional intervention in addition to chemotherapy can help. Mm. <clears throat> so anyway, he said that stacking therapies can help as well. And, uh, I guess that's, yeah. I, I guess that's something that I, the average person wouldn't hear, but if you right. have cancer and you're speaking with a doctor, maybe they talk to you about it. I don't know. Or maybe what you get, the or maybe you talk to a couple doctors, Yeah, talk but, to a couple doctors and get some different opinions. You yeah. know, if you're talking to one doctor, he's saying one thing, maybe you decide to talk to somebody else to back that up too. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you're doing chemotherapy, maybe you're like starting to do some nutritional intervention too. To yeah. try and assist with that, you yeah. Know? Just some thoughts, just some ideas from Doctor Atia here. Yeah, which he did serve at uh, the National Cancer Institute. You know, he was a surgical oncologist there. Oh, so, wow. I mean, he's, okay. He's he's pretty into the cancer thing. Okay. You know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. He he brings up a new type of treatment called immunotherapy. I'm just going to read this real quick. The immune system is programmed to distinguish non-self from self. That is to recognize invading pathogens in foreign bodies among our own healthy native cells and then to kill or neutralize the harmful agents. Immunotherapy is any therapy that tries to boost or harness the patient's immune system to fight an infection or other condition. The problem with trying to treat cancer this way is that while cancer cells are abnormal and dangerous, they are technically still our cells, like I was saying earlier. They have cleverly evolved to hide from the immune system and specifically our T-cells, the immune system's assassins that would ordinarily kill foreign cells. So for a cancer immunotherapy to succeed, we essentially need to teach the immune system to recognize and kill our own cells that have turned cancerous. It needs to be able to distinguish bad self, which is cancer, from good self, everything else. So this is a technique where basically they can... Uh, you know, use some genetic engineering to modify your T cells. They can, you know, infuse them into your blood and then help train your body to fight the cancer. So, yeah, you I mean, know, it's pretty crazy. He goes into a pretty in-depth breakdown of how this works, but bottom line, it has been effective with some people, but not all people. Mm. So they're still working on it. So this is a new science. This is a newer approach, newer approach. attacking cancer. Right, a newer approach. And there's different types of it too. So immunotherapy, there's different types of immunotherapy, but basically they're trying to genetically modify your T cells, um, infuse that into your blood. Those genetically modified ones can help train 
your other T cells about what to do. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, you know, he does believe that we have a small taste of what can be accomplished via immunotherapy, but it's just going to take more time to figure it out. Hmm. Interesting. But definitely something you could ask, you know, if you're, if you have cancer, you could ask about immunotherapy versus chemotherapy. You know, you might have to travel around a little bit to try and figure out, um, you know, who's doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right. He says the final and perhaps more important tool in our anti-cancer arsenal is early aggressive screening. This remains a controversial topic, but the evidence is overwhelming that catching cancer early is almost always net beneficial. Too many cancers are detected too late after they've grown and spread. Very few treatments work against these advanced cancers. In most cases, outside of the few cancers that respond to immunotherapy, the best we can hope for is to delay death slightly, which is kind of depressing. He's like, basically, cancer is going to get you at some point. Yeah, you know, it's definitely a, you know, a reality yeah. for a lot of people, unfortunately. Yeah. You know. Unless they respond to immunotherapies. Mm-hmm. That's what he's saying. Yeah. He says, when cancers are detected early in stage one, survival rates skyrocket. This is partly because of simple math. These earlier stage cancers comprise fewer total cancerous cells with fewer mutations and thus are more vulnerable to treatment with the drugs we do have, including some immunotherapies. The problem yet is that we're not very good at detecting cancer in these early stages. Out of dozens of different types of cancers, we have agreed upon reliable screening methods for only five lung cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, colorectal cancer, and cervical cancer. So we can only reliably detect five, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. All right. So this is what he recommends. A couple things he recommends. In my practice, we go further, typically encouraging average risk individuals to get a colonoscopy by age 40 and even sooner if anything in their history suggests they may be at a higher risk. We then repeat the procedure as often as every two to three years. So basically, colonoscopy by age 40, repeat every two years. Yeah. Keep a track on that. Yeah. <clears throat> he said colon cancer has been documented to appear within the span as of as little as six months. So better be safe than sorry. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> that's why I recommend it so often. I don't want to say this, but... <clears throat> Cover your ass. Oh, yeah. They're going to be in your ass. <laughs> well, I know. <laughs> Cover your ass by yeah. getting the colonoscopy. Oh, yeah. He said that other cancers that are relatively easy to spot on visual exam- examination include skin cancer, melanomas. The mm-hmm. pap smear for cervical cancer is another well-established minimally invasive test I recommend for my patients yearly. When we're talking about cancers that develop inside the body and our internal organs, things get trickier. We can't seem we can't see them directly, so we must rely on imaging technologies such as low dose CT scans and MRI. Which MRI like MRI screening for cancer is like a new thing coming up. He's he's talking about in the book. It's a big thing. He highly recommends it. Right. Also the blood. Uh, he's, he's optimistic about blood biopsies that seek the presence of cancers, but those aren't hundred percent solidified yet. Right. This is all new science. It feels like. Right. So basically when you're doing cancer detection, you're trying to prevent it. Colonoscopy by age 40, every two years, 
You could do it earlier, if anything in your history to suggest you're at a higher risk. Anything that can be spotted via visual uh, examination, get that done. Skin cancer, melanomas, pap smear for cervical cancer, and then MRI for internal, Yeah, if you can. Mm-hmm. He said, of all the horsemen, cancer is probably the hardest to prevent. The only, only modifiable risks that really stand out in the data are smoking, so stop smoking, don't smoke, mm-hmm. insulin resistance, and obesity, all to be avoided. All right, um, so again with the insulin and resistance and obesity, it's like, you know, get your metabolic health in order. Yeah. Get out of that metabolic syndrome if you have that. Yeah. So that's the chapter on cancer, trying to touch some wave tops here. The chapter is a big chapter. Again, he did serve at the National Cancer Institute, so he's got a lot to say. Um, but that's kind of the bottom line. Yeah. You know, but uh, definitely tough scenario, obviously. But yeah. try to avoid it if you can. Try to detect it. Be early uh, in your detection of cancer. And then as soon as it's detected, immediately attack it. Yeah. You know, be proactive. Yeah. All right. The next uh, chapter we're going to get into is chasing memory, understanding Alzheimer's diseases and other neurodegenerative diseases which is another one of the horsemen that Dr. Peter Atia brings up. He says, Alzheimer's disease is perhaps the most difficult, most irretractable of the horseman diseases. We have much more limited understanding of how and why it begins and how to slow or prevent it than we do with atherosclerosis, which is cardiovascular disease. Alzheimer's disease is the most common, but there are other neurodegenerative diseases that concern us. The most prevalent of these are Lewy body dementia and Parkinson's disease, which are actually different forms of a related disorder known confusingly as dementia with Lewy bodies. The primary difference between them is that Lewy body dementia is primarily a dementing disorder, meaning it affects cognition while Parkinson's disease is considered primarily, but not entirely, a movement disorder, although it does also result in cognitive decline. Parkinson's is the fastest growing neurodegenerative disease. Beyond that, there are a variety of less common, but also serious neurodegenerative conditions, such as ALS and Huntington's disease. So anyway, something else we got to be worried about is our cognition yeah. and, uh, you know, dementia, those types of things. Mm-hmm. The idea of preventing Alzheimer's disease began to gain scientific support. A two-year randomized controlled trial in Finland published in 2015 found that interventions around nutrition, physical activity, and cognitive training help maintain cognitive function and prevent cognitive decline among a group of more than 1,200 at-risk older adults. So right there, uh, talking about some of the main things, nutrition, physical activity, cognitive training. You remember podcast episode 47 we did with Mark McGirt? Mm-hmm. You remember one of the things he had us doing there? The brain games. The brain games. Mm. That's what it made me think of. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had someone that I that I know, she got or she was diagnosed with Parkinson's, I called him. I said, hey, what what can we do? What can happen? Can the MAT, you know, help and all that kind of stuff? But those brain, that's what this made me think of. Those brain games that he does, you know? Yeah. Keeps the brain firing. Yeah. You know? And those those games were uh, 
they're not like i mean it's like fun exercise right you know but they're challenging they're challenging but it's like a fun challenge right exactly yeah it wasn't really like a workout that maybe you like right i have to do this it's like all right let me do this see how far i can get he makes it like a challenge yeah yeah, like a fun thing Mm -hmm. continuing on if there were ever a disease that called for a medicine 3.0 approach where prevention is not only important but our only option Alzheimer's disease and related neurodegenerative diseases are it. In a broader sense, all of us are at risk, at some risk of Alzheimer's disease and neurodegenerative disease. Like the other horsemen, dementia has an extremely long prologue. This is why an important first step with any patient who may have cognitive issues is to subject them to a grueling battery of tests. These are clinically validated, highly complex tests that cover every domain of cognition and memory, including executive function, attention, processing speed, verbal fluency and memory, recalling a list of words, logical memory, recalling a phrase in the middle of a paragraph, associative memory, linking a name to a face, spatial memory, location of items in a room, and schismatic memory. How many animals you can name in a minute, for example. My patients almost always come back complaining about the difficulty of the tests. I just smile and nod. One of the first things to be affected by Alzheimer's disease are our olfactory neurons. So the way you smell things. Mm. So anyway, he does a bunch of tests with his patients like he just described. There's also a gene test that you can test for to see if you're at a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease. And if you are, then what he does is like, you know, certain protocols for that. Continuing on to the prevention plan here, he says the very concept of Alzheimer's prevention is still relatively new. We have only begun to scratch the surface of what we might be able to accomplish. Because metabolism plays such an outsized role with at-risk patients, our first step is to address any metabolic issues they may have. Our goal is to improve glucose metabolism, inflammation, and oxidative stress. One possible recommendation for someone would be to switch to a Mediterranean-style diet, relying more on monosaturated fats and fewer refined carbohydrates in addition to regular consumption of fatty fish. There is some evidence that supplementation with omega-3 fatty acid DHA found in fish oil may also help maintain brain health. This is also one area where a ketogenic diet may offer a real functional advantage. When someone is in ketosis, their brain relies on a mix of ketones and glucose for fuel. So anyway, we're talking about adjusting protocols to the individual. These are just some examples, but he brought up first metabolic health, which means going back to the first thing we talked about, we don't want to have metabolic syndrome. You know what I'm saying? Those five things, if you have three out of five, you have metabolic syndrome. We don't want that. Mm. Continuing on, he said, the single most powerful item in our prevention toolkit is exercise, which has a two-pronged impact on neurodegenerative disease. It helps maintain glucose homeostasis and it improves the health of our vasculature. Strength training is also important. A study looked at nearly half of a million patients in the United Kingdom found that grip strength, an excellent proxy for overall strength, was strongly and inversely associated with the incident of dementia. 
the, epidemi- the epidemiology linking strength and cardiorespiratory fitness to lower risk for neurodegeneration is so uniform in its direction and magnitude that my own skepticism of the power of exercise has slowly melted away. I now pay- tell patients that exercise is the best tool we have in the neurodegenerative prevention toolkit. So it's interesting. He brings up the grip strength thing. Cause mm-hmm. I've heard that before mm-hmm. is that if you have strong forearms, it has some role to play in your longevity. Well, he says that grip strength is an indicator of overall strength. Right. Like if you have strong grip, yeah, I mean, you're grabbing things to pull. Yeah. You're grabbing yeah things yeah. to push, which you can Dead build your grip strength up just right. like any other muscle in your right. body. So yeah. it's like, I feel like if you build that up, Mm-hmm. You know, or if you work, do exercises that build your grip strength, then mm-hmm. it plays a long-term, long-term factor. Well, the ways you build body. it up are yeah. like doing heavy things, yeah, deadlifting, yeah, yeah. bench out. pressing, yeah. barbell rowing, yeah. dumbbell rowing, mm-hmm. moving dumbbells, farmer carries. Yeah. All that's like overall strength, but it's also your grip. Mm-hmm. Then you could do specific grip things too. Yeah. But that's what he's getting to. You know yeah. what I'm saying? It's interesting he brings that up. Um, he also talks about sleep. Sleep is also a powerful tool. Sleep is when our brain heals itself. When we are in deep sleep, our brains are essentially cleaning house, sweeping away intracellular waste that can build up between our neurons. Sleep disruptions and poor sleep are potential drivers of increased risk of dementia. If poor sleep is accompanied by high stress, it acts as a multiplier of risk as it contributes to insulin resistance and damaging the hippocampus at the same time. Another surprising risk factor that has emerged is hearing loss. Studies have found that hearing loss is clearly associated with Alzheimer's disease, but not a direct symptom. Rather, it seems hearing loss, rather, it seems hearing loss may be casually linked to cognitive decline because folks with hearing loss tend to pull back and withdraw from interactions with others. When the brain is deprived of inputs, in this case auditory inputs, it withers. Patients with hearing loss miss out on socializing, intellectual stimulation, and feeling connected. Prescribing them hearing aids may help relieve some symptoms. Hmm. That means take care of your hearing. Yeah. So if you're allowed round thing around around loud things like lawnmowers, guns, shooting. <laughs> uh machines yeah, you know machinery. put put your ear pro in yeah you know yeah another surprising intervention that may help reduce systematic systemic inflammation and possibly alzheimer's disease is brushing and flossing one's teeth you heard me floss there is a growing body of research linking oral health particularly the state of one's gum tissue with overall health yeah, I've been saying this for years. <laughs> so is every dentist. I've been saying right this now. for years. <laughs> Dentists are uh, saying, "I told you so." There's someone that right we now. know that uh, doesn't go to the dentist, and uh, I've been telling that person for years to go to the dentist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, if if you brush your teeth but don't floss, I'm I'm you know, I might be talking to myself right now. Yeah, you well, know, I'm a big flossing. I'm a big brush your teeth guy. Yeah brush your teeth i brush my teeth two to three times a day yeah just because like At i like minimum. i like the feeling of clean yeah. teeth yeah and you do a power uh, toothbrush or a power toothbrush yeah. guy because you know manual the power toothbrush is easier mm-hmm. you know it's going to hit it a little bit better mm-hmm. than your manual definitely but uh i've always been a rough on the flossing mm. and then it's like every time i go to the dentist mm. uh 
the dentist would be like, you need to floss more. Mm-hmm. Your gums are bleeding. And I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, no shit. Yeah. You know? And uh, then when I go go home the next couple of weeks, like I'm on my game flossing, mm-hmm. but it's like, because I have years of like not flossing, <laughs> I just go back to not flossing and then rinse and repeat. So yeah. it's always been a battle of mine to stay on you gotta top get of the, the air, flossing. You got to get the uh, water pick. I have it, but it just, I don't know, for me, it just gets so messy. Why? Like as I just spray water all over my. Well, you're doing stuff. it wrong. You put it in your mouth. You close your mouth. You turn it on. Yeah. You got to run it along your gums and yeah, between yeah, each yeah. tooth, and then you turn it off before you open your mouth. That is one. <laughs> I have it. I literally have it, but it's I haven't used it. Like whenever I first started, like, those are like pressure washing your teeth. It yeah. feels so clean. Maybe I should break it back out. Break it back. Break out. it back out. Start using to. it again. Like, I cannot live without it. I I I do that after every meal. Yeah. And first thing in the morning, last thing at night, I do it like probably five times a day. Mm. This shit's banging. Dang. And if I'm traveling and I don't have it, I'm pissed. I might need to break it back out. Break it back out. Yeah. All right. He brought up dry saunas. He said they can help. The best interpretation I can draw from the literature suggests that at least four sessions per week of at least 20 minutes per session at 179 degrees Fahrenheit or hotter seems to be the sweet spot to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's by about 65%. And the risk of heart disease by 50%. Other potential interventions that have shown some promise in studies include lowering homocysteine with B vitamins, optimizing omega 3 fatty acids, and higher vitamin D levels have been correlated with better memory. So you get that Jocko vitamin D3 going yeah. one a day. Yeah. Get, make sure your vitamin D uh, levels are high. I know he brought up the uh, omega threes earlier too mm-hmm. in the book, which I know are good. Jocko fuel super krill oil. Yeah. So the the fish oils are. Yeah. I mean, been popular for a pretty long time. Mm-hmm. About or getting like two servings food. of salmon in a week. Yeah. You know, I'm just not a fish guy. Something I don't like, like eating fish, but you if you're gonna take the fish pills, then yeah, good to go. Well, that's the good thing about krill oil is like some fish pills you have like the fish taste, krill oil you don't. Yeah. Which krill is like a shrimp. Yeah. 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 But going back to what he said about the sauna, he recommends four sessions per week, 20 minutes per session, 179 degrees Fahrenheit or higher. So I've got to write that down. I feel like this is good, but if you don't have access to one, like if you live in an area where maybe like a gym has one, ideally. My gym has one. You know, but like mine doesn't have one. So it's like you just got to find the right one. Yeah. Or maybe there's not one in your area. I guess you could. There, there is ones that you can order. Yeah, you can get the small. But they're ones. expensive, you know. So yeah. It's yeah. Like, but if you have access, then yeah, exactly. You could use it, utilize it. You know, if you have access. I wonder if a hot tub could be as well. It probably doesn't get that hot. 179 degrees. I is think yeah, hot. hot tubs get around 120 or 100 no or something way. like. A hot tubs like 100. Think so. Like 100, maybe 120 is pushing it. I feel like that's melting that's your boiling. skin. boiling. <laughs> yeah, that might be that might be too much. Maybe around like 90 to 100. <clears throat> I guess that's like putting raw chicken in a pot. Continuing on. The scariest aspect of Alzheimer's disease boils down to this. Medicine 2.0 cannot help us at all. So we are forced to leave the familiar territory of the medicine that we know with the promise of its certainty and embrace the medicine 3.0 concepts of prevention and risk education. As it stands now, Alzheimer's disease is the last of the horsemen that we must bypass on our way to becoming centenarians. It's the last obstacle we must face. Therefore, we need to adopt a very early and comprehensive approach to preventing Alzheimer's and other forms of neurodegenerative disease. 
Broadly, our strategy should be based on the following principles. 1. What's good for the heart is good for the brain. That is, vascular health, meaning low a lower ApoB, lower inflammation, lower oxidative stress, is crucial for brain health. 2. What's good for the liver and pancreas is good for the brain. Metabolic health is crucial to brain health. 3. Time is key. We need to think about prevention early, and the more the deck is stacked against you genetically, the harder you need to work and the sooner you need to start. As with cardiovascular disease, we need to play a very long game. 4. Our most powerful tool for preventing cognitive decline is exercise. We've talked a lot about diet and metabolism, but exercise appears to act in multiple ways to preserve brain health. We'll go into more detail later, but exercise, lots of it, is a foundation of our Alzheimer's prevention program. Boom. I want to go work out right now. <laughs> you haven't already? Not yet. <laughs> Dude. I'm not up at 5 a.m. What the hell? 5 a.m.? Get up, get after it. All right, so that's some, uh, you know, basically <clears throat> overarching strategy of the four horsemen, metabolic issues, you know, cardiovascular issues, neurodegenerative issues, cancer. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now we're thinking more tactically. So in this part of the book, we're going to be getting more tactical with some uh, protocols, and he's going to be going through basically exercise and nutritional uh, protocols here. So jumping right in. Even as modern life has helped extend our lifespans and improve living standards, it has also created conditions that conspire to limit our longevity in certain ways. The conundrum we face is that our environment <coughs> excuse me. Holy shit. The conundrum we face is that our environment <coughs> Drink some water. What'd you do to me? Just drink some water. <laughs> the conundrum we face is that our environment has changed dramatically over the last century or two and almost every imaginable way. Our food supply and eating habits, our activity levels, and the structure of our social networks, while our genes have scarcely changed at all. We saw a classic example of this in chapter 6, with the changing role that fructose has played in our diet. Long ago, when we consumed fructose mainly in the form of fruit and honey, it enabled us to store energy as fat, to survive cold winters and periods of scarcity. Fructose was our friend. Now fructose is vastly overabundant in our diet. Too much of it in liquid form, which disrupts our metabolism and our overall energy balance. We can easily take in far more fructose calories than our body can safely handle. This new environment we have created is potentially toxic with respect to what we eat, how we move, how we sleep, and its overall effect on our emotional health. It's, a, it's for, as foreign to our evolved genome as an airport would be to Hippocrates. Hippocrates. Hippocrates? Hippocrates. Basically a Greek philosopher. Mm -hmm. That coupled with our newfound ability to survive epidemics, injuries, and illnesses that formerly killed us has added up to almost a defiance of natural selection. Our genes no longer match our environment. 
Thus, we must be cunning in our tactics if we are to adapt and thrive in this new and hazardous world. By now, we should understand our strategy fairly well. Hopefully, I have given you some understanding of the biological mechanisms that help predispose us to certain diseases and how those diseases progress. Now it's time to explore our tactics, the means and methods by which we will try to navigate this strange and sometimes perilous new environment. In Medicine 3.0, we have five tactical domains that we can address in order to alter someone's health. The first is exercise, which I consider to be by far the most potent domain in terms of its impact on both lifespan and health span. Of course, exercise is not just one thing, so I must break it down into its components of aerobic efficiency, maximum aerobic output, which is your VO2 max, strength and stability, all of which we will discuss. Next is diet, nutrition, or as I prefer to call it, nutritional biochemistry. The third domain is sleep, which has gone underappreciated by Medicine 2.0. The fourth domain encompasses a set of tools and techniques to manage and improve emotional health. Our fifth and final domain consists of the various drugs, supplements, and hormones that doctors learn about in medical school and beyond. I lump these into one bucket. So, anyway, that's what we're about to dive into. So, first is going to be exercise, right? When we're talking about tactics. Um, he did bring up a car, car, uh, you know, driving a car, which I will read that real quick. He says, what constitutes an effective tactic? One way I like to explain this is through the example of car accidents. They kill far too many people of all age groups, one person every 12 minutes. Yet I believe that a fair number of these deaths could be prevented with proper tactics. The obvious tactics we already know about. Wear a seatbelt. Don't text and drive, which is difficult for many people. And don't drink and drive, since alcohol is a factor in up to a third of fatalities. Automotive fatality statistics also reveal that about 30% of deaths include ex- excessive speed. These are helpful reminders, but not really surprising or insightful. Seems like common sense. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. but people just can't contain themselves. I know, yeah. I mean, people know don't drink and drive, don't text and drive. And right. They still do it. Even with Don't speed don't excessively. Care. Yeah. You know, you know, five miles, you know, not a big deal. Yeah. 15, 20. 15, 20, different story. Yeah. Our two most complex tactical domains are nutrition and exercise, and I find that most people need to make changes in both of them. When I evaluate new patients, I'm always asking three questions. Are they overnourished or undernourished? That is, are they taking in too many or too few calories? Because there's a lot of people not eating enough. Yeah. A lot of people eating too many. Yeah. Are they under-muscled or adequately muscled? which uh, I believe we've already talked about. We'll talk about again, but like you, you decline in your muscle mass as you age. So you want to preserve your lean muscle mass and increase it as best you can. Right. So you don't want to be under muscled, you know, are they metabolically healthy or not? Which we've already talked about. <clears throat> All right. So again, basically these are going to be adjusted protocols to each individual, right? So when we're talking about exercise, He starts out by saying, should he be doing more cardio or more weights? 
someone asked him, should he be doing more cardio, more weights? And the guy said, I'm really confused by all the contradictory stuff I'm seeing out there, which I wanted to mention because that's like a big thing in today's world. There's so many, too much information. Yeah. People are jumping from one train to the next train within days. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that can be an issue. More than any other technical domain we will discuss in the book, <clears throat> exercise has the greatest power to determine how you will live out the rest of your life. There are reams of data supporting the notion that even a fairly minimal amount of exercise can lengthen your life by years. It delays the onset of chronic diseases pretty much across the board, but it's also amazingly effective at extending and improving health span. Not only does it reverse physical decline, but it can slow or reverse cognitive decline as well. It also has benefits with emotional health. Yes, you should be doing cardio, and yes, you should be lifting weights. So you need to be doing both. Right. For those who are not habitual exercisers yet, you're in luck. The benefits of exercise begin with any amount of activity, activity north of zero, even brisk walking, and they just go up from there. Just as almost any diet represents a vast improvement over eating only fast food, Almost any exercise is better than remaining sedentary. So if you can just start walking, start walking. Yeah. Get a dog, start walking your yeah. dog. You know what I'm saying? If you're used to not doing anything, just start with that. Yeah. Baby steps. Yeah. He says, let's start with cardio, respiratory, or aerobic fitness. This means how efficiently your body can deliver oxygen to your muscles and how efficiently your muscles can extract that oxygen, enabling you to run or walk or cycle or swim long distances. It also comes into play in daily life, manifesting as physical stamina. The more aerobically fit you are, the more energy you will have for whatever you are doing. It turns out that peak aerobic cardiorespiratory fitness, measured in, t in terms of VO2 max, is perhaps the single most important marker for longevity. So you got obviously weightlifting strength, you got your cardio, which a lot of people you know, they, they link cardio to fat loss. It's not how it should be thought about. Right. We want to think about cardio as improving our body's ability to acquire oxygen and use that oxygen efficiently. Mm -hmm. And you basically have two aspects to your aerobic fitness. You want to pay attention to you got your zone two cardio and your VO two max VO two max is like your maximum, uh, output of cardio respiratory fitness. And then zone two is basically like, uh, you know, your baseline, your foundation. Exercise strengthens the heart and helps maintain the circulatory system. As we'll see later in the chapter, it also improves the health of mitochondria, the crucial little organisms that produce energy in our cells. That in turn improves our ability to metabolize both glucose and fat. Having more muscle mass and stronger muscles helps support and protect the body and also maintain metabolic health. But those muscles consume energy efficiently. The list goes on and on. But simply put, exercise helps the human machine perform far better for longer. When we are exercising, our muscles generate molecules known as ketones that send signals to other parts of our body, helping to strengthen our immune system and stimulate the growth of new muscle and stronger bones. Endurance exercise, such as running or cycling, helps generate another potential potent molecule called brain derived 
neurotropic factor that improves the health and function of the brain. Exercise helps keep the brain vasculature healthy and it may also preserve brain volume. One of the prime hallmarks of aging is that our physical capacity erodes. Our cardiorespiratory fitness declines for various reasons that begin with lower cardiac output, primarily due to reduced maximum heart rate. We lose strength and muscle mass with each passing decade. Our bones grow fragile and our joints stiffen, and our balance falters, a fact that many men and women discover the hard way by falling off a ladder or while stepping off a curb or falling out of bed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Got me mid-sip there, but yeah. Hopefully you, hopefully you get the point by now. I mean, yeah. he's, just, he's just laying it he's on. He's kind of harping on it a little he's bit more. He's harping on it. Yeah. How, uh, how much this is important, yeah. you know? I mean, yeah, movement is lotion, right? Isn't that what you say? Motion is lotion. Motion is lotion, yeah. yeah. So, I mean. So, basically, as time goes on, you're going to lose cardiorespiratory function. You're going to lose muscle mass. You know, your joints are going to stiffen, right? So, it's even more important to maintain this as we age. And what that means is that if as you age that it's going to go away, you got to be better at it when you're younger. Yeah. So yeah. if you're not good at it when you're younger, you're going to age more harshly. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, get really good now yeah. or while while you're younger. Right. Which uh, pays off down the road as long as you maintain what's co- what you've been doing. You know who's good at this stuff? Who? Juju Mufu. Oh, yeah. Flexibility. Oh, yeah. He's very flexible. All about the flexibility. Stab- stability. Yeah. Strength. Yeah. You know? All right. Continuing on. This is why I place such an emphasis on weight training and doing it now, no matter your age. It's never too late to start. My mom did not begin lifting weights until she was 67, and it has changed her life. Therefore, I will find a way to lift heavy weights in some way, shape, or form four times a week, no matter what else I'm doing or where I might be traveling. But exercise gets little more than lip service from Medicine 2.0. When was the last time your doctor tested your grips? your grip strength or asked you a detailed question about your strength training. Does your doctor know your VO two max? Yeah. I mean, doctors don't talk about no, it. Yeah. Well, they normally don't tell you to work out, right? I know they don't even bring it up. I don't feel it's like. like here, get on this pill. You remember years ago when you went to the doctor cause you were having like headaches or like stress or something cause mm. you were drinking too much caffeine. Yeah. You yeah, remember yeah. that? Yeah. Did that dude ever bring anything up about exercise? Nah, not not really. He yeah. he was he was didn't honestly figure out why I was there. Right. It was also a local local dude. Yeah. Who was not my normal doctor, and uh, but he's a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't bring up exercise or anything. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm trying to remember because it was like a year or two ago. Yeah. But I mean, if if he did ask about it, it was like very brief. Mm-hmm. But he's not like, what's your grip strength? Mm-hmm. What or like. How active are you? Yeah. You know, but when was the last time that your doctor asked you about what your exercise program? Yeah, exactly. They never have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. All right. Continuing on. He brings up this thing called the centenarian decathlon. The centenarian decathlon is a framework I use to organize my patients' physical aspirations for the later decades of their lives, especially their marginal decade. Think of the centenarian decathlon as the 10 most important physical tasks you will want to be able to do for the rest of your life. Some of the items on the list resemble actual athletic events, 
While some are closer to activities of daily living and still others might reflect your own personal interests. So what are some things you want to do? Like he gives a, examples here. Walk one and a half miles on a hill, hilly trail. Get up off the floor with your own power. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, it's kind of weird thinking about this stuff because it's like you got to think about yeah. when you're old. But so, get up off the floor by yourself. That's a yeah. big deal. I'm going to do that. Be able to get up out of my bed. Be able to get up off the couch. Be able to walk with my dogs. Mm-hmm. Be able to, if you have kids, walk with your kids. Pick up your kids off the floor. Pick your kids up. You know, play with your grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Have you know? sex. Have sex. Balance on one leg for 30 seconds. Eyes open. All right. Bonus points. Eyes closed. 15 seconds. Yeah. I mean. Interesting. That's kind of stuff that he's saying. Yeah. Lift a 20-pound suitcase into the overhead compartment of a plane. Yeah, I feel like as a young person, you're not thinking about this shit. Open a jar. That's yeah. what he said. Open a jar. I know some people now that have that problem. <laughs> you probably <laughs> want to work on your grip strength. Yeah. Climb four flights of stairs in three minutes. I mean, if you're like older. Yeah, it's tough. Can you get up the stairs? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? It brings up some good points. Mm-hmm. Doing a squat while holding a 30-pound dumbbell in front of you. Goblet squat. Mm-hmm. Can you do that now at age 40? 30-pound dumbbell. Yeah, easy. Most likely. But now let's look into the future. Over the next 30 or 40 years, your muscle your muscle strength will decline by about 8 to 17% per decade, accelerating as time goes on. You're going to have to be able to pick up about 50 to 55 pounds now without hurting yourself. Can you do that? I press the issue. You also want to be able to hike a trail on a hilly uh, on a you want to be able to hike on a hilly trail. To do that, comfortably requires a VO2 max of roughly 30. I'm not going to give all the different specific, yeah. but VO2 max of 30. Let's take a look at the results of your latest VO2 max test. And guess what? You only scored a 30. You're average for your age. But I'm afraid that's not good enough because your VO2 max is also going to decline. You can pull it off now, but you likely won't be able to do it when you're older. Yeah. So this is him saying, look at the long term. Yeah. What do you want to do long term? Right. You got to prepare now for that. Yeah. You know, definitely want to get strong. You know, get get your weight uh, capacity up when you're lifting weights. You know, goblet squat, hundred pounds. Let's go, baby. Yeah. You know. Yeah. VO two max. That's something on my list to, to get tested, and I believe he says tested every year. But uh, that so where t- are you testing that at? Your doctor can test it. For you got you got to find a local place that can test it. Mm. You know. Your doctor office won't have it. It's yeah. going to be a special specialty thing. Hmm. Um, some other examples he gave um, are swim a half mile in 20 minutes, walk with a 30-pound dumbbell in each hand for one minute. Uh, he likes archery, so he said basically draw back and fire a 50-pound compound bow, do five pull-ups. I feel like five pull-ups even for the average Joe. That's, that's hard. A, that's a problem. Then. Yeah, that's hard. That's a problem. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. It's like if you took an average person and say do five pull-ups. How about know? this? Dead hang for one minute. You know what that is? Just hanging. There. Hanging on a pull-up bar. Yeah. Just hanging there. Can you do it for one minute or can you not? Yeah. Mm. I mean, pull-ups are hard like to build up. I know. You know? So you it's like work. something you definitely you have to work focus on. That's, also that's something I focus on when I'm doing back in yeah. the gym. Pull-ups are the first thing I do. Yeah. You got to build up that grip strength too. Yeah. The centenarian decathlon is ambiguous. No question. 
A 90-year-old who is even able to board a plane under her own power, let alone hoist a carry-on bag, is doing extremely well. But there is a method to the madness. These individual tasks are not out of reach. You know your you know your girlfriend's gonna want to uh, travel when you're ninety, so you better oh, yeah. be training. Uh, you better talk to her about that. <laughs> I'm training. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna be the one putting the suitcases up. Oh, if she listens to this, she's gonna slap uh, you. Yeah, <laughs> I'll tell it to her face. One purpose of the centenarian decathlon, in fact, is to help us redefine what is possible in our later years and wipe away the default assumption that most people will be weak and incapable at that point in their lives. We need to abolish that decrepit stereotype and create a new narrative. As centenarian decathletes, we are no longer training for a specific event, but to become a different sort of athlete together, an athlete of life. So like you're looking that. at that long term. I like that. You're looking at that long term, you know. So if anyone asks you, what are you training for? Life, Life. baby. Oh, yeah. Life. <laughs> That's good. All right. He says, we are seeking to optimize our exercise regimen around the principle of longevity. The three dimensions we want to optimize are aerobic endurance and efficiency, a.k.a. cardio, strength and stability. All three of these are key to maintaining your health and strength as you, as you age. Uh, for cardio, for our purposes, we are interested in two particular regions of this continuum. Long, steady endurance work, such as jogging or cycling or swimming, where we are training in what uh, is called zone two, and maximal aerobic effort where VO2 max comes into play. The strength side of the equation is simpler at first. If you use your muscles to counter some resistance in the form of weights or other forces, they will adapt and grow stronger. That's how muscle works, and it's really quite wonderful. There are a few specific movements I consider to be foundational, but here our most important goal is not only to build strength and muscle mass. It's equally important that we avoid injury in the process. Don't want to get injured. Yeah where uh, stability comes in. Stability makes us bulletproof. This is why our approach to exercise must increase not only our conventional measures of fitness, such as VO2 max and our muscular strength, but above all, our resistance to injury. So that's one thing, obviously, it's gotten very important to me ever since I tore my bicep, Yeah, trying not to get injured, you know, being yeah. smarter. Injury could set you back too. Definitely. You know. Especially if you're older. You oh, know? yeah. Especially if you're older. And I mean, that could result in a major decline for you. So, yeah. All right, zone two. Typically, zone one is a walk in the park and zone five is an all-out sprint. Zone two is more or less the same in all training models, going at a speed slow enough that one can still maintain a conversation, but fast enough that the conversation might be a little strained. So it's between easy and moderate. So when you're training your zone two, you want to make sure that you could have a conversation, but it would be difficult to maintain conversation. Yeah. As fundamental as zone two training is for professional athletes, it's even more important for non-athletes for two reasons. First, it builds a base of endurance for anything else you do in life, whether that is riding your bike in a 100-mile century ride or playing with your kids or grandkids. The other reason is that it plays a crucial role in preventing chronic disease by improving the health and efficiency of your mitochondria, which is why training aerobic endurance and efficiency, zone two work, 
is the first element of my centenarian decathlon training program. Mm. Again, it's not about fat loss. Mm -hmm. It's about making sure your body can operate properly. One other plus of zone two is that it's very easy to do, even for someone who has been sedentary. For some people, a brisk walk might get them into zone two. For those in better condition, zone two means walking uphill. There are many different ways to do it. You can ride a stationary bicycle at the gym. You can walk. You can jog. You can run. You can swim some laps in the pool. The key is to find an activity that fits your lifestyle and that you enjoy doing. And that enables you to work at a steady pace and that meets the zone two tests. You're able to talk in full sentences, but barely. So I do this when I'm walking my dogs. I literally force myself to walk hard and fast enough to where it's hard to talk. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I use my dog walks as an opportunity to get zone two in. Yeah. Yeah, he says find something that you enjoy doing. So if you have a dog, boom, incorporate it. Right. You know? If you like riding a bike, you like swimming, you can mix it up, do different things. How much zone two training you need depends on who you are. Someone who is just being introduced to this type of training will derive enormous benefit from even two 30-minute sessions per week to start. It seems that about three hours per week of zone two or four 45-minute sessions is the minimum required for people to derive a benefit and make improvements once you get over the initial hump of trying it out for the first time. What do you think about that? That's three hours total. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah. So if you were to like do all your walks in zone two, could you get three hours in? Is he saying to do the three hours at one time? No, three hours a week total. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. I'm walking one hour a day. Right. You know, at so 45 you, minutes to an hour. So yes. you do it three days a week, you've already hit your mark. So when you break this down, you think about how you couldn't start incorporating this protocol. Yeah. For you, it could you could do it. Yeah. You could exceed that because yeah. you got your walks. Oh, but yeah. that means you have to push your walk to be that challenging walk. Right, you got to go at a fast pace. You have to get into a zone two state. Yeah. You know? So I know that my walks get me into that zone two because I'm forcing the issue. Also, when I'm training, training dogs and I'm walking them, I'm forcing that issue as well, getting myself into zone two. But I also swim once a week and I'll run at least once a week. And when I run, I run in zone two. Yeah. So. I feel like riding a bike would be another good outlet yep. for me. Yep. Because uh, at least on a stationary bike, I don't have an actual bike. But mm -hmm. if I got an actual bike, it'd probably be more enjoyable because you're like looking around and shit as yeah. you're pedaling. But biking is like if, when you get on that stationary bike and you start going, mm -hmm. it's like, damn, this shit is right. hard. Oh, yeah. You know, it's yeah. like harder than you think. Definitely. You know? I've been doing the assault bike at the gym recently. For I mean, my also, DOT you got to go at a pace that is in the zone, right? right. So you got to push yourself. Also a elliptical. Yeah. Ellip you know? elliptical. Too. Also rower. I mean, there's so many options. Also, how about this? Weightlifting, but supersetting. Yeah. So that it's hard to breathe. Yeah. That gets you into zone two, too. Yeah. I just did some giant sets the other day. Mm. Nonstop giant set. By the end of it, I'm like the two, the, I give myself like a two minute rest in between. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, need those two minutes, mm -hmm. you know, because I'm like, I'm gassed right now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. So remember that zone two, <clears throat> you can, the best way to kind of make sure you're there is that you can talk, but it's hard to talk. Yeah, yeah. You're like, yeah, so anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that's, yeah. that's kind of what like you're looking for. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Continuing on. 
He says that zone two is akin to building a foundation for a house. Most people will never see it, but it is nevertheless important work that helps us support virtually everything else we do. All right, so that's it for zone two. Continuing on, we're going into VO2 max next. So if you take one thing away from what we just said, zone two, you want to get in there three hours a week total. Break it up how you need to. I know he's a big proponent of the 45-minute sessions, but if you can only do like a 10-minute walk Mm -hmm. three times a day, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what the vertical diet recommends, getting into zone two after each meal. During your – you walk after the meal for 10 minutes, get into zone two. That's the priority. Gotcha. To meet that three-hour-per-week quota. Yeah. Yeah. All right. If zone two represents a steady state where you were kind of cruising along at a sustainable pace – VO2 max efforts are almost the opposite. This is a much higher level of intensity, a hard minutes long effort, but still well short of an all out sprint at VO2 max. We are using a combination of aerobic and anaerobic pathway to produce energy, but we are at our maximum rate of oxygen consumption. Oxygen consumption is the key. I have all of my patients undergo VO2 max testing and then train to improve their score. We have all of our patients do the test annually, and they all hate it. (laughs) Write that down, (laughs) Max, annually. Yep. Juju Mufu just did his and posted it on his YouTube, and it did look insane. Mm. You put this mask on. Yeah. Because they're, you know, testing the air coming in and out of your mouth. Yeah. And you got to do the treadmill, and then they tell you, faster, faster. They increase the speed until they get you up there. Yeah. Dang. All right. For example, a 35-year-old man with an average fitness for his age, a VO2 max in the mid-30s, should be able to run at a 10-minute mile pace. But by age 70, only the very fittest 5% of people will still be able to manage this. Hmm. So if you can run 5%, huh? If you can run 10-minute miles right now in your mid-30s, you're behind the curve. Dang. You know what I'm saying? Holy That's cow. what he's saying. Cuz only 5% when can do it when they're 70. Mm, I want to be that 70-year-old that can run a 10-minute mile. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Wow. I push my patients to train for as high a VO2 max as possible so that they can maintain a high level of physical function as they age. Ideally, I want them to target the elite range for their age and sex, roughly the top 2%. If they achieve that level, I say, good job. Now let's reach for the elite level for your sex, but two decades younger. Dang. This may seem like an extreme goal, but I like to aim high in case you haven't noticed. So basically in the book here, there's a, there's a figure that basically gives the average VO2 max with the age. Mm-hmm. And he's saying that you want to be in the elite range for your age and sex for VO2 max in the top 2%. Once you achieve that, good job. Now go for the elite level for your sex two decades younger. So 20 years younger Dang. than you currently are. That's hard. So for me, that'd be 10 years old. Dang. <laughs> Wouldn't hard. it be? Yeah, because I'm well, like technically, 30. technically, yeah. Yeah. Right now. But, but if, if you're I'm like 40, 50. If I'm 40, then that means 20. 20. Yeah, yeah. Which when I was 20, I was running a five-minute mile, a 453 <laughs> mile mm. in my test that I was doing. So, I mean. Pushing the envelope hard. Yeah. Like at that, at that current age. Yeah. Keep in mind, increasing your VO2 max by any amount is going to improve your life not only in terms of how long you live, but also how well you live today and in the future. This is why it's essential to train VO2 max in addition to zone two. 
It's a key to maintaining a fulfilling, independent life as you age, but it takes hard work over a long period of time to build it up and keep it up. Even if we are not out to set world records, the way we train VO2 max is pretty similar to the way elite athletes do it. By supplementing our zone 2 work with one or two VO2 max workouts per week. Where hit intervals are very short, typically measured in seconds, VO2 max intervals are a bit longer, ranging from 3 to 8 minutes in a notch less intense. I do these workouts on my road bike mounted to a stationary trainer or on a rowing machine, but running on a treadmill or track could also work. The tried and true formula for these intervals is to go 4 minutes at maximum pace you can sustain for this amount of time. Not an all-out sprint, but still very hard effort. Then ride or jog four minutes easy, which should be enough time for your heart rate to come back down to below about 100 beats per minute. Repeat this four to six times and cool down. So VO2 max is going to be that four minutes on, four minutes off, four rounds per week. Yeah. Getting a little uh, breaking down hardcore with the numbers. Yeah. So this is what I do every Saturday. Mm. Saturday is my deadlift day. I do deadlifts. I do some other back work, a little bit of biceps. Yeah. A little bit of grip. And then I do four minutes on, four minutes off, VO2 max. Recently, I've been doing the assault bike, which I really enjoy because I can use just my arms. I can use my legs. I can do all the above. Before that, I was doing the rowing machine. Yeah. So it's usually one of those two. And I did do the elliptical for a couple of weeks. But basically four minutes, all out effort. You know what I'm saying? You got to sustain a pace. So whatever pace I get on, let's say I'm on a machine and it's telling, and I go all out and it's telling me like on the rowing machine, for example, I'm doing 500 meters and, you know, a minute, 30 seconds. I have to maintain that pace. So if I notice I'm starting to get slower, I got to push it to stay, to stay hard. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then that four minutes off, you got to take the full four minutes because you have to let your heart rate recover before you do max effort again. Right. If you don't fully recover, you're not going to adapt appropriately. Right. You know what I'm saying? <coughs> so anyway, that's zone two. That's VO2 max. Now strength. The sad fact is that our muscle mass begins to decline as early as our 30s. <gasps> An 80-year-old man will have about 40% less muscle tissue than he did at 25 but muscle mass may be the least important metric here we lose muscle strength about two to three times more quickly than we lose muscle mass and we lose power which is strength times speed two to three times faster than we lose strength this is because the biggest single change in the aging of muscle is the atrophy of our fast twitch or type 2 muscle fibers our training must be geared towards improving these with heavy resistance training Daily life in zone 2 endurance work may be enough to prevent atrophy of type 1 muscle fibers, but unless you are working against significant resistance, your type 2 muscle fibers will wither away. It takes much less time to lose muscle mass and strength than to gain it, particularly if we are sedentary. Even if someone has been training diligently, a short period of inactivity can erase many of those gains. Like you said, getting injured. Yeah. You know, when I tore my bicep, I've stayed in the gym. Yeah. I, my, my left arm was not able to work, but my right arm was. So I was training the right side of my body, which yeah. is weird. 
Also a lot of legs. Mm. If someone is sedentary and consuming excess calories, muscle loss accelerates. So if you're eating too much and you're not working, you lose muscle faster. Dang. Because one of the primary destinations of fat spillover is into muscle. Mm. So if you ever see people again with, with puffy arms and like legs or whatever. Yeah. It's because the fat's going there. Yeah. Excess fat spillover. Crazy. In its most extreme form, this muscle loss is called sarcopenia. Someone with sarcopenia will have low energy, feelings of weakness, and problems with balance. Sarcopenia is a prime marker for a broader clinical condition called frailty, where a person meets three of these five criteria. Unintended weight loss, exhaustion or low energy, low physical activity, slowness in walking, and grip weak grip strength. It can become difficult to stand or walk, and they're at a huge risk of falling and breaking bones, which is a big risk factor as we get older, like bones breaking. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Another metric we track closely in our patients is their bone density. We measure this in every patient every year, looking at both their hips and their lumbar, sp lumbar spine using DEXA scan. This also measures body fat and lean mass, so it's a useful tool across all the three body composition domains we care about. All right. Continuing on. Uh, he did talk about if he starts to detect lone bone density, this is what he does. When we detect or when we detect low or rapidly declining bone density in a middle-aged person, we use the following four strategies. One, optimize nutrition, focusing on protein and total energy. Two, heavy load-bearing activity, strength training, especially with heavy weights. This will stimulate the growth of bone. Interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, three, HRT. Four, drugs to increase bone density if indicated. Ideally, we can solve the problem with the first two, optimizing nutrition and strength training, but we are not afraid to use the second two methods where appropriate. I think of strength training as a form of retirement saving. Just as we want to retire with enough money saved up to sustain us for the rest of our lives, we want to reach older age with enough of a reserve of muscle and bone density to protect us from injury and allow us to continue to pursue the activities we enjoy. It is much better to save and invest and plan ahead, letting your wealth build gradually over decades than to scramble and try to scrape together an individual retirement account in your late 50s and hope and pray that the stock market gods help you out. Like investing, strength training is also cumulative. Its benefits compounding. The more of a reserve you build up early on, the better off you'll be in the long term. Makes sense. And he says that he likes to measure strength with in how you carry heavy stuff. Yeah. How you uh how how uh able are you to carry things? So farmers carries, Zerker carries, carrying your groceries, yeah, these types of things, mm -hmm. you know. The farmer's carries are good. Oh farmer's carries are good. You get a good little stretch. If your gym's got a good little stretch, you can take the 45s for a walk, and you can do some traps, 45s. too. 45s. Let's, let's walk the 100s, baby. Oh, I mean, you know. I Depen think he, depends what you're going for. He says that you should be able to carry half of your body weight in each hand. Okay. So how much you weigh? Like 162. So that's 80 162, pounds. 162, 64. Yeah, 80 yeah, pounds yeah. in each hand. 
Although I, no, I haven't pounds. done, I haven't done them ninety recently. pounds on each. I haven't done them recently, but come on, boys, ninety pounds each hand. That's I can do that. Okay, I think <laughs> eighty to ninety pounds. Yeah, yeah. If you can't do it, get up to it. You know, that's why we're talking about yeah. it. Yeah, my gym literally has a farmer carry machine. Oh yeah, those are nice. It's a treadmill with the yeah, stack yeah, yeah. the weights on the side. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> the dude, when I was at Crunch Fitness, they used to have one of those, oh, and really? I did it. Yeah, and that shit smokes you. Oh yeah, it's I don't hard. know why. It's it seems harder than actually walking with weights. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard, dude. But you feel strong afterwards. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it definitely plays a, it, and that also builds up your shoulders. Yeah, shoulders, traps, everything. I mean, back. Yeah. Legs. You're feeling beefy. Your legs. Yeah. All right. Fundamentally, I structure my training around exercises that improve the following. Grip strength. How hard you can grip with your hands, which involves everything from your hands to your lats. Attention to both concentric and eccentric loading for all movements. Meaning, when our muscles are shortened, concentric, and when our muscles are lengthened, eccentric. In other words, we need to be able to lift the weight up and put it down slowly with control. Yeah. Pulling motions from all angles, from overhead in front of you, which also requires grip strength, such as pull-ups and rows. Hip hinging movements such as deadlift and squat, but also step-ups, hip thrusters, and countless single-leg variants of exercises that strengthen the legs, glutes, and lower back. I focus on these four fundamental elements of strength because they are the most relevant to our centenarian decathlon and also to living a fulfilling and active life in our later decades. If you can grip strongly, you can open a jar with ease. If you can pull, you can carry groceries and lift heavy objects. If you can do a hip hinge correctly, you can get up out of a chair with no problem. You're setting yourself to age well. It's not about how much weight you can deadlift now, but how well you will function in 20 or 30 or 40 years. So again, just reviewing his four uh, fundamentals of exercise. Grip strength, which we talked about earlier. You can train that with farmer carry. You can train it with like barbell row, deadlift, pull-ups, like anything you have to grip, dead hangs, right? Uh, Controlling the weight, basically, right? So... moving weight controlled not pushing it up really fast and let or not pushing it up slow dropping it fast it's like control it up control it down that's one that feels the best to me definitely it feels good when you're like slow pushing definitely. on bench press you're just like oh, i got this shit until, you know? until, yeah. falls back <laughs> until it falls on you and you gotta get someone <laughs> to come help you uh it could have happened to me pulling motions from all angles so that's your rows that's your pull-ups that's like basically you know all that stuff yeah that also requires grip strength Hip hinging movements like deadlift, squat, hip thrusters, step ups, anything like that. Yep. Those are the, those are the four fundamentals. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, what do you got on that? Any other thoughts on that? I'm agreeing with what I'm hearing. All right. You know? He said one of the standards we ask of our male patients is that they can carry half their body weight in each hand, full body weight in total, for at least one minute. Our female patients, we pushed for 75% of their weight. I feel like I got to work on mine. <clears throat> Definitely. I kind of want to go test it out. Honestly. Now you know. To, when I go to the gym today, I'm going to go test it out. Now you know what you're going for. Yeah, yeah. Right? 80 to 90. You're going for freaking half your body weight in each hand for one minute yeah. minimum. Sets you up. Yeah. 
Uh, he does recommend dead, dead hanging for a pull up from a pull up bar. We like to see men hang for two minutes at least and women for at least 90 seconds. Hmm. At the age of 40, I know his wife did this recently on his Instagram. She was at like five minutes or something. Yeah, yeah. Or, or more than that. Yeah. All right. Um, controlling the weight as, it, as you're going up, controlling it as you're going down, you know, things like Just control that. Control your weights in general, I feel like. True. You should be. And full range of motion, mm-hmm. you know. All right. Moving on. So that's all for the strength and the uh, VO2 max in zone two. Okay. So we got those fundamentals down. Check. Okay. All right. Now we're going into stability. I'm not going to go into huge. He has a huge chapter on stability. Remember, stability makes you bulletproof. Mm-hmm. Uh, it prevents injury. Um, his first commandment of fitness is do yourself no harm, which he thinks stability is the key ingredient to that. He says this requires a change in our mindset. We have to break out of the mentality that we must crush all of our workouts every single time we go to the gym, doing the most reps with the heaviest weights day after day. As I've learned, pushing oneself so hard all the time without adequate stability almost inevitably leads to injury. Mm. And going back to what we were talking about, Juju Mufu, he's big on flexibility. That's also stability. Yeah. And whenever I injured myself, I realized I'm doing shit wrong. Mm-hmm. So then I focused on that kind of stuff, yeah. you know, cause I don't want to get um, injured. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. He said that most injuries are often a uh, lack of caused by a lack of stability. Mm-hmm. He said that stability lets us create the most force in the safest manner possible. So Makes sense. keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, he does recommend something called DNS stands for dynamic neuromuscular stabilization. He said it sounds complicated, but it is based on the simplest, most natural movements we make the way we moved when we were babies, mm. which I watch my kids, how they move. And I'm like, okay, that, that's a, like a natural movement. The way yeah. they sit down, the way they stand up, squatting, moving, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So he does recommend people look into DNS. You can YouTube it. You can check it out. Uh, look into it. Do some of those movement patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, he suggested the website www.rehabps.com for DNS. Mm. All right. He said that breathing, stability also involves breathing. Breathing is also important to stability and movement and even to strength. Poor or disordered breathing can affect our motor control and make us susceptible to injury. One simple test we ask of everyone early on looks like this. Lie on your back with one hand on your belly and the other on your chest and just breathe normally without putting any effort or thought into it. Notice which hand is rising and falling. Is it the one on your chest or your belly? Or both. Or neither. Some people tend to flare their ribs and expand the chest on the inhale while the, while the belly is flat or even goes down. This creates in the upper body and midline tightness. And if the ribs stay flared, it's difficult to achieve full exhalation. Others breathe primarily into the belly, which tilts, tilts the pelvis forward. Still others are compressed, meaning they have difficulty moving air in and out altogether because they cannot expand the rib cage with each inhalation. 
So, interesting exercise to try out. Maybe we'll have all the trainers do it. There you go. Make a video out of it. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, we're going to go through just a quick explanation of how you should be breathing. But they they break down breathing into different types of categories. But everyone should train to breathe properly is what he's saying. Mm-hmm. The idea behind breath training is that proper breathing takes so many other physical parameters. Rib position, neck position, the shape of the spine, even the position of our feet on the ground. The way in which we breathe reflects how we interact with the world. His trainer, Beth Lewis, you can look her up on Instagram. He talks about her. Beth likes to start with an exercise that builds awareness of the breath and strengthens the diaphragm, which is not only important to breathing, but also an important stabilizer in the body. She has the patient lie on their back with legs up on a bench or chair and ask them to inhale as quietly as possible with the least amount of movement as possible. An ideal inhalation expands the entire rib cage, front, sides, and back, while the belly expands at the same time, allowing the respiratory and pelvic diaphragm to descend. The telltale is that it is quiet. A noisy inhale looks and feels more dramatic, as the neck, chest, or belly will move first, and the diaphragm cannot descend freely, making it more difficult to get air in. Now exhale fully through pursed lips for maximum compression and air resistance to strengthen the diaphragm. Blow all of that air out, fully emptying yourself before your shoulders round and your face or jaw gets tense. Very soon you will see how a full exhale prepares you for a good inhale and vice versa. Repeat the process for five breaths and do two to three sets. Be sure to pause after each exhale at least two counts to hold the isometric contraction. This is key. You learn to think of the abdomen as a cylinder, surrounded by a wall of muscle, with the diaphragm on the top and pelvic floor below. So you can do that while you're driving too. You're going to inhale as quietly as possible. No noise, right? Once you have inhaled, you're going to purse your lips, maximum exhale maximum compression get all the air out hold and then inhale again just got me thinking about breathing just normally yeah (laughs) just like paying attention to my breathing yeah absolutely all right so anyway that's some breathing stuff he goes into more detail on breathing he also talks about your feet yeah which is funny because uh i don't know why it reminded me of it but when you go to like the chiropractor's office Mm mm-hmm they're like checking your feet, you know, I think it has to do with like the spine or something. But Definitely. The feet are a telltale sign of, you know, I guess a bunch of things. He said, if the road to stability begins with the breath, it travels through the feet. The most fundamental point of contact between our bodies and the world. Our feet are literally the foundation for any movement we make. Whether we're lifting something heavy, running, walking, or rucking, climbing stairs, or standing, waiting for a bus. We're always channeling force through our feet. Unfortunately, too many of us have lost basic strength and awareness of our feet, thanks to too much time spent in shoes, especially big shoes with thick soles. What? I wear the Merrells, boys. Good to go. 
<laughs> you know, I'm big into the minimalistic shoe wear uh-huh. where it's got the wide toe box, you know, mm-hmm. basically the smallest sole possible. And I have noticed big changes in my feet and uh, my knees and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, he has a quick protocol in here. You can do this if you're listening um, for your feet to think about your feet. All right. All right. Think of your feet as having four corners, each of which needs to be rooted firmly on the ground at all times. So right now, put your feet on the ground. Imagine there's four corners. As you stand there or sit there, try to feel each corner of each foot pressing into the ground, the base of your big toe, the base of your pinky toe, the inside and outside of your heel. This may sound easy and relevatory, when was the last time you felt this? Are you doing it? I'm doing it. I feel like the back, my right heel is like not pressing. That means you got a problem. All right, here we go. <laughs> next, next step. What about you? Next you, you step. You got your feet on the I floor. practice this. Why do you? Yeah. I'm practicing right now. I'm doing it right now. I'm doing it, it with you. It seems like on my right foot, my right heel is like not pushing down. And then on my left foot, my left foot's not bad. Maybe my left heel a little bit. Continuing on. Try to lift all 10 toes off the ground and spread them as wide as you can. Now try to put just your big toe back on the floor while keeping your other toes lifted. Can you do that? Yeah. Now do the opposite. Keep four toes on the floor and lift only your big toe. Four toes on the floor? Yeah. So lift your big toe, put all your other toes onto the ground. Can you do that? Barely. What? Are like you serious? My, my feet just want to stay on the ground. Like my, it's really? like a brain thing. Really? Are you serious? No way. You can't lift just for your big toe, dude. I can. Yeah, I can on my right foot. On my left foot, legit. Like my toes just want to stay on the ground. What? My big toe is up though. Sounds like you need to practice this On my more right often. foot, I got my big toe up. Sounds like you need to practice this more often. <laughs> Bro, I can't get my left big toe off the ground. <laughs> All right, keep four <laughs> toes on the ground and lift only your big toe. Then lift all of your toes and try to drop them one by one, starting with your big toe. Can you do that? Lift all your toes in the air, drop one at a time, starting with your big toe. That's hard to do. That's really hard to do. Yeah. I'm not making it happen. Right all right, now. here we go. If you can do this at all, it likely takes a concerted mental effort. Your brain telling that big toe to drop or rise, which is exactly the point. One of the goals of stability training is to regain mental control, conscious or not, over key muscles and body parts. Because our feet spend so much time crammed into shoes that may or may not fit properly and likely have a lot of padding in their soles, many of us have lost touch with our feet or have worked them into unhelpful contortions over time. I want to be trying this. Females that wear heels, any shoes that have a pointed uh, toe, that's not helping you. You got to get the wide toe box, minimal uh, sole, so your feet can operate like they're supposed to. So check out Barefoot Shoes, spelt like a bear, B-E-A-R, shoes. And then also check out Viva, Vivo Barefoot. 
You're you're struggling. I can't pick my left big toe up off the ground (laughs) while my other toes are on the ground. It's it's driving me crazy. You also need to get some yoga toes and put them in your in between Uh, your toes at nighttime to stretch them out. That's another thing. Bro, it's like a legit brain game where your brain is telling you to do it, and your (laughs) your body's not listening. It's throwing me off. Uh, So anyway, some stuff with stability. Obviously, we know it's important because Ben's struggling over here with his big toe. <laughs> and I got a big, big toe, too. <laughs> he also brings up ways uh, to get some stability into your spine, which can be the cat and cow like yoga poses. Also, I think it's called uh, Jacobson Jacobson's Curl or something like that, where basically you stand on a box, you grab a barbell, and you just slowly go all the way down where the barbell passes your feet. And then you slowly stand back up straight. And with the cat and cow poses in yoga and the Jacobson's curl, you're trying to feel the position of each vertebrae right in your spine as you're moving through those motions. Mm. And then uh, let's see. The last one we'll go through for your shoulders. Ready? I'm listening. Go ahead and get ready. (laughs) This is called scapular controlled articular rotations. Stand or sit with your feet shoulder width apart and place a medium to light resistance band under your feet. Mm. One handle on each hand. We don't have that right now. Okay. But we don't. I do have resistance bands. All right. But let's just act like you have one. (laughs) Keeping your arms at your sides, raise your shoulder blades, then squeeze them back together. This is retraction. This is where we want them to be when they are under load. Then drop them down your back. So you got to raise your shoulder blades. Squeeze them back, drop drop them down behind your back while they're still squeezed. Finally, bring them forward to the starting point. So basically, you're moving in a square. Starting point, up, back, down, forward. Up, back, down, forward. We start out moving in squares like this, but the goal is to learn enough control that we can move our scapular in smooth circles. Can you do that? Up, back, down, forward, and like yeah, a circle. Pretty good. A large part of what we're working on in stability training is this kind of neuromuscular control, reestablishing the connection between our brain and key muscle groups and joints, which also goes into what we talked about with Mark McGirt, mm-hmm. episode 47, that MAT, muscle activation technique, yeah. right? Yeah. Anyway, stability work. All right. He, some, he goes, some fun ones to try out. He goes into more detail, but those are like the big hitters, the heavy hitters. Yeah. All right, so we talked about zone two. We talked about VO2 max. We talked about strength training. We talked about stability. Now we got to talk about nutrition, right? Um, there's a lot of different things with nutrition, right? He, he, uh, he does bring up the fact that there's so many uh, contradicting information. Yeah. He says, uh, my final quibble about the world of nutrition and diets is the extreme tribalism that seems to prevail there. Low fat, vegan, carnivore, paleo, low carb, Atkins. Every diet has its zealous warriors who will proclaim the superiority of their way of eating over all others until their dying breath, despite a total lack of conclusive evidence. Once upon a time, I too was one of those passionate advocates. I spent three years on a ketogenic diet and have written and blogged and spoken extensively about that journey for better and for worse. 
He's done uh, keto, uh, keto. He's done vegan. He talks about it in the book, and he under and he said that's what, like why he understands more about nutrition because he's mm-hmm. like tried all these different things. Mm-hmm. He said that he thinks most people spend either too much or too little time thinking about nutrition. Yeah. He said, "I encourage my patients to avoid using the term diet at all. When you eat a slice of uh, cheese." or rice crispy square you are ingesting a multitude of different chemical compounds just as their chemical makeup differentiates them in terms of taste the molecules in the food we consume affects multiple enzymes and pathways and mechanisms in our bodies many of which we have discussed in previous chapters so basically foods made up of molecules right your body's going to use them in different ways so he says instead of diet we should be talking about nutritional biochemistry that takes it all out of the realm of ideology and religion and above all emotion and places it firmly back into the realm of science. We can think of this new approach as nutrition 3.0, scientifically rigorous, highly personalized and driven by feedback and data rather than an ideology and label. It's not about telling you what to eat, It's about figuring out what works for your body and your goals. And just as important, what you can stick to. Yeah. Hmm. So again, he said, are you undernourished or overnourished? Are you under-muscled or adequately muscled? Are you metabolically healthy or not? Those are the three questions we keep asking ourselves. Yeah. The correlation between poor metabolic health and being overnourished and under-muscled is high. Hence... For a vast, for a majority of patients, the goal is to reduce energy intake while adding lean mass. This means we need to find ways to get them to consume fewer calories while also increasing their protein intake and to pair this with proper exercise. This is the most common problem we are trying to solve around nutrition. Mm. All right. So we're talking about nutrition where you need to maintain good lean mass, right? Um, we need to be eating appropriate, uh, calories. So he said, nutrition is relatively simple. Actually, it boils down to a few basic rules. Don't eat too many calories or too few consume sufficient protein and essential fats, obtain the vitamins and minerals you need and avoid pathogens. All right. He said, we are aimed at changing the way you think about diet and nutrition rather than telling you to eat this, not that. So real quick, we don't want to eat too many calories. We don't want to eat too few. We want to consume sufficient protein and essential fats, obtain the vitamins and minerals, micronutrients that we need. So the vertical diet has worked really well for me. For me, But I will say consuming enough protein is, is difficult if you're not serious about it. Because I just went out to eat the other day with uh, my family and, you know, I'm tracking my food and all that. I'm looking at the menu. I'm trying to calculate, okay, how much protein am I going to get from this meal? And if you're going out to eat at a restaurant, you have to deliberately get the protein in. Yeah. Because most of the meal options are not going to be giving you enough protein. Mm-hmm. So or it's like if you're tracking your meals, like this is what happened with me, mm-hmm. is like when I was starting to do it, it you know, the uh, Carbon app tells you like mm-hmm. how much to shoot for in a day or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, I, I get plenty of protein, but then when you actually track all your meals, it's like, 
you might be missing like 50 grams of protein, just, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So if it's telling you like 120 worth of grams of protein, maybe you only hit like 70, Yeah. you know, or something. You're like, damn, you like have I'm to missing be, a lot. You have to be serious about it. Yeah. You have yeah. to be deliberate about it, mm -hmm. which is going to help you longevity. Yeah. Most people are on the sad though. Yeah. Standard American diet. It is our default food environment occupying the middle of the grocery store, the boxed and frozen and bagged bounty of an agricultural system that produces subsidized corn, flour, sugar, and soybeans by the megaton. On one level, it's brilliant, a solution to four problems that have plagued humanity since the beginning. How to produce enough food to feed almost everyone. How to do it inexpensively. How to preserve that food so that it can be stored and transported safely and how to make it highly palatable. If you optimize for all four of these characteristics, you're pretty much guaranteed to end up with the SAD, the standard American diet, which is not so much a diet as a business model for how to feed the world efficiently. Two cheers for modern industrial food systems. But notice that a fifth criterion is missing. How do I make it harmless? The SAD was not specifically intended to do harm, of course. The fact was that it does harm the fact is that it does harm most of us if consumed in excess. This is a consequence of the four points above colliding with millions of years of evolution that have optimized us to be highly efficient fat storage vehicles. All right. Sad standard American diet. It induces us to eat more than we need to, becoming overnourished. While its preponderance of low-quality, ultra-processed ingredients tend to displace other nutrients that we need, such as protein, to maintain optimal health, which I talked about just a second ago. Go out to a restaurant, you know, you have to be delivered about getting enough protein in. Mm -hmm. Alright, so the sad is basically destroying your body, bottom yeah. line. Yeah. You know. Um, Hence the sad. Yeah. <laughs> The sad disrupts our, the body's metabolic equilibrium. <clears throat> it places enormous strain on our ability to control our blood glucose levels, and it causes us to store fat when we should be utilizing it. The leading source of calories that the Americans consume is a category called grain-based desserts, like pies, cakes, and cookies, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That is our number one food group. If we consume a bunch of grain-fed, grain-based desserts, in a cheesecake factory bench, our blood glucose levels will surge. And if we do it over and over and over again, we will eventually overwhelm our ability to handle all those calories in a safe way. The SAD essentially wages war on our metabolic health. And given enough time, most of us will lose the war. The further we get away from the SAD, the better off we will be. This is the common goal of most diets to help us break free of the powerful gravitational pull of the sad so that we can eat less and hopefully eat better. But eating less is the primary aim. Once you strip away the labels and the ideology, almost all diets rely on at least one of the following three strategies to accomplish this. Calorie restriction, which is eating less in total, but without attention to what's being eaten or when it's being eaten. Dietary restriction, eating less of a particular element within the diet. Time restriction, 
restricting eating to certain certain times up to and including multi-day fasting. So he basically, he's talking about the sad, how it's detrimental to us, how it's waging war in our body. And then once you get away from the sad, when you're, when you're trying to diet or when you're on a diet, it's going to follow one of these three strategies, which is reducing your calories, reducing your dietary options, and then time restriction or fasting type things. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, bottom line, he says, uh, calorie restriction, uh, is hands down the most, uh, efficient and is the winner out of all these options. This is how bodybuilders shed weight while holding on to muscle mass. It also allows the most flexibility with food choices. The catch is that you have to do it perfectly, tracking every single thing you eat and not succumbing to the urge to cheat or snack or it doesn't work. Most people have a hard time sticking with it. Yeah, sounds about right. Anyway, that's kind of the gist on that. Nutritional biochemistry, calorie restriction, if you do something like I do with the carbon diet coach, you're doing calorie restriction, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so you're basically uh, tracking your calories. You can eat whatever you want to eat, basically, but you got to meet your macronutrient goals for that day. Yeah. All right. He does bring up alcohol. A lot of questions about alcohol. Here we go. He said it's easy to overlook, but alcohol should be considered as its own category of mic- macronutrient because it's so widely consumed. It has such potent effects on our metabolism, and it is so caloric dense at 7 kcal per gram. So it's uh, more dense than protein and carbohydrate, a little bit less dense than fats. Yeah. Alcohol serves no nutritional or health purpose. It's purely a pleasure that needs to be managed. It's especially disruptive for people who are overnourished for three reasons. It's an empty calorie source that offers zero nutritional value. The oxidation of ethanol delays fat oxidation, which is the exact opposite of what we want if we're trying to lose fat mass. And drinking alcohol often leads to mindless eating. Yeah. So those are the downsides. But people like alcohol. All sounds about right. (laughs) People like alcohol. He, He knows that. So this is what he says. Nevertheless, for many of my patients, the lifestyle around moderate drinking, such as a nice glass of wine with a non-sad dinner, helps them dissipate stress. My personal bottom line, if you drink, try to be mindful about it. You'll enjoy it more and suffer fewer consequences. Don't just keep drinking because they're serving it on the plane. I strongly urge my patients to, li- to limit alcohol to fewer than seven servings per week and ideally no more than two on any given day. Yeah, I think, I mean, you just, everything in moderation. Yeah. You know, be smart about it. Alcohol, if you're going to do it, no more than seven servings a week, no more than two per day to try to counterbalance the negatives of it. Yeah. All right. Carbohydrates are another macronutrient. He said that carbs probably create more confusion than any other macro. They're not good or bad, although some types are better than others. They are our primary energy source. He said, we already know it's not good to consume excessive calories. In the case of carbohydrates, those calories can lead a multitude of problems, as we've already discussed. Yeah. So carbs are not good or bad. They're simply an um, 
energy source, mm-hmm. right? They definitely taste good, though. I love carbs. <laughs> I love carbs. Mac Going back cheese. to the donut. Mac and cheese. Donut. <laughs> Mac and cheese. I mean, bread, <laughs> garlic bread, sandwiches, oh, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. list goes on. He also says that basically if you're using energy, you can eat more. Obviously, yeah. if you're yeah. an athlete, you can eat more. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? If you work out, you can eat more. Probably. Right, exactly. Depending on who you are. You know, I'm not saying for everybody. But yeah. it does uh, give you the ability to eat good stuff yeah <laughs> all right so he did talk about continuous glucose monitoring which is something that people are talking about these days it's basically a prescription device that connects to you and reads your blood levels mm. um, so that you know what your glucose is doing throughout the throughout the day mm-hmm. so he used one for a couple of years and he has some insights from it which i decided that are probably good just to read out real quick first of all not all carbs are created equal the more refined the carb like a dinner roll or potato chips, the faster and higher the glucose spike, which is not good. Mm-hmm. Less processed carbohydrates and those with more fiber, on the other hand, blunt the glucose impact. I try to eat more than 50 grams of fiber per day. Rice and oatmeal are surprisingly glycemic, meaning they cause a sharp rise in glucose levels, despite not being particularly refined. So just know rice and oatmeal are going to spike that um, just like the uh, refined carbs. Mm-hmm. Fructose does not get measured by CGM, but because fructose is almost always consumed in combination with glucose, fructose-heavy foods will likely cause blood glucose spikes. Not good. Timing, duration, and intensity of exercise matter a lot. In general, aerobic exercise seems most efficient at removing glucose from the circulation. While high-intensity exercise and strength training tend to increase glucose transiency because the liver is sending more glucose into the circulation to fuel the muscles. Don't be alarmed by glucose spikes when you are exercising. A good versus bad night of sleep makes a world of difference in terms of glucose control. All things equal, it appears that sleeping just 5 to 6 hours versus 8 hours accounts for about a... 10 to 20 milligram per deciliter jump in peak glucose response and about 5 to 10 milligram per deciliter in overall levels, which he's saying that's a big deal. Mm. He's saying that little, that less sleep, not good. Yeah. Right. He says stress has a surprising impact on blood, on blood glucose, even when one is fasting or restricting carbohydrates. It's difficult to quantify, but the effect is most visible during sleeper periods at long after meals non-starchy vegetables such as spinach or broccoli have virtually no impact on blood sugar so have at them which i have a bunch of spinach every day yeah foods high in protein and fat such as eggs beef short ribs have virtually no effect on blood sugar assuming the short ribs are not coated in sweet sauce large amounts of lean protein such as chicken breast will elevate glucose slightly Protein shakes, especially if low in fat, have a more pronounced effect, especially if they contain sugar. Stacking the above insights in both directions is very powerful. So if you're stressed out, sleeping poorly, and unable to make time to exercise, be careful with what you eat. All right, so that's carbs. Okay. So basically, carbs... You want to try and plan those out around your workouts. Before your workout, after your workout are the best time to take in a lot of carbs. 
And for me, I work out early in the morning. I'm sure there's a lot of people that do that. So I eat a big meal at nighttime before I go to bed. And then my breakfast after my workout is a carb heavy meal. Right. All right. Protein. Protein is a building block for life. It is not a source of energy. Carbs and fat are sources of energy. Protein, not a source of energy. If you consume more protein than you can synthesize in the lean mass, you will simply excrete the excess in your pee. Protein is all about structure. The 20 amino acids that make up the proteins are the building blocks for our muscles, our enzymes, and many of the most important hormones in our body. They go into everything from growing and maintaining our hair, skin, and nails to helping form the antibodies in our immune system. On top of this, we must obtain 9 of the 20 amino acids that we require from our diet because we can't synthesize them. The first thing you need to know about protein is that the standard recommendations for daily consumption are a joke. So you know how there's like different U.S. recommendations or recommended dietary allowance. That's a joke he said. Yeah. How much protein do we actually need? It varies a little from person to person. In my patients, I typically set a 1.6 gram to kilogram per day as the minimum which is twice the recommended daily allowance by the United States. So basically he breaks that down for most people. It's going to be one gram per pound of body weight per day is a good starting place, which is, this is triple the minimum recommendation, right? But everybody out there, you're shooting for at least one gram per pound per day, per pound of body weight per day. Okay. So if you weigh 180 pounds, you need to eat 180 pounds of, 180 grams of protein a day yeah and to most people that's a lot of protein because they're not used to eating protein yeah um so that's the ideal thing you can eat a little bit more you can eat a little bit less depending on what you're doing okay if you're in a fat loss phase you do want to eat a little bit more protein all right so trying to simplify this as easy as possible uh he said that there is evidence that older people might require more protein because of the anabolic resistance that develops with age. I try to consume enough to maintain muscle mass as I train. If I find that I'm losing muscle, I have to eat more. Older people in particular should try to keep track of their lean mass, such as via body composition measuring scale or better yet DEXA, and adjust their protein intake upwards if their lean mass is declining. All right, then he says, you have this protein to eat each day, Break it up evenly into four meals per day. So if you weigh 180 pounds, you got to eat 180 grams of protein. You need to break that up into four meals. So 180 divided by four, whatever that number is, it's like. It's like around 40 something. Four, eight, 12, 16. Yeah, it'll be like around. uh, Between 40 and 50, right? Yeah, it'll be between 40 and 50. So let's just say 45 grams. So that means you need four four meals of 45 grams of protein a day, roughly. You don't want to eat it all at one time. You want to break it up throughout the day because the way your body's processing and synthesizing protein. Yeah. All right. Uh, Quick word on plant protein. Uh, Do you need to eat meat, fish, and dairy to get sufficient protein? No. But if you choose to get all of your protein from plants, you need to understand two things. First, the protein found in plants is there for the benefit of the plant. 
which means it is largely tied up in indigestible fiber and therefore less bioavailable to the person eating it, which means your body can't take it in. Because much of the plant's protein is tied up in its roots, leaves, and other structures, only about 60 to 70% of what you consume is contributing to your daily needs. Um, so basically he's saying that animal protein is, is superior, but you can achieve your protein goals through plants. Yeah. You just have to be very careful with it and do your math properly. Mm -hmm. All right. He said that a lot of times for him and his patients for their four meals, one of those meals will be like a protein shake Yeah, to help them get their daily protein in. Yeah. All right. He said, in case my point here isn't clear enough, let me restate it. Don't ignore protein. It's the one macronutrient that is absolutely essential to our goals. There's no minimum requirement for carbohydrates or fats in practical terms. But if you shortchange protein, you will most likely pay a price, particularly as you age. So you better get your protein in. Yep, get one your protein body, in. One gram per body, pound of body weight per day. Yep. All right, then he talks about fats, which is the last macronutrient. He said fat is essential, but too much can be problematic, both in terms of total energy intake and also metabolically. For a long time, fat has had a long, bad rap. Like carbohydrates, fats are often labeled good or bad on the basis of one's tribal or political stripes. In actuality, of course, it's not that black and white. Fats have an important place in any diet, and therefore it's important to understand them. Fats are both fuel and building blocks for our body. They are are very efficient fuel for oxidation, think a slow-burning log, and also the building block for many of our hormones in the form of cholesterol. So you need fats, especially for your hormones, right? A lot of people are trying to skimp out on their fats. You need them to get your hormones into an optimal state, whether you're male, female, whatever. Yeah. Right. So if you're having issues, it could be because your fats are too low. Mm. You're not eating enough fats. Yeah. Um, he does recommend, you know, olive oil, avocado, nuts, animal fats. He gets very sciencey here. Yeah. Um, see if I can break this down a little bit more. Fruits, right? Getting fats from fruits. So animal fats, you know, natural things. Yeah. Olive oil, stuff like that. Many sources. Yeah. He does not uh, like vegetable oils. He does not like margarine. He does not like, uh, you know, all these oils that people are making, like soybean oil. Yeah. You know, highly processed oils he's not a fan of. Yeah. All right. Is that dumbing down or is that too little information? No, that's pretty pretty good. I mean, you're going to get your fat from various sources. Just make sure that they're from the right sources. Mm-hmm. You know, so you got to do a little bit of research. He also says you need to see how your body's responding to fats. Yeah. You might find that there's certain food groups that your body responds well to and doesn't respond well to. And the way that they're checking that is through blood work and how your lipid panels are. What's your ApoB number? Is your ApoB number moving Mm -hmm. any certain way if you add or subtract certain fats from your diet? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But fats are essential, so don't lose them. Don't don't lose out on them. All right, here's a conclusion for nutritional biochemistry. The bad news is that most Americans are not metabolically healthy. 
So they need to pay attention to nutrition. In most cases, addressing the problem means reducing overall energy intake, cutting calories, but in a way that is sustainable for the individual person. We also have to focus on eliminating those types of foods that raise blood glucose too much, but in a way that also does not compromise protein intake and lean body mass. This is where it gets tricky. Protein is actually the most important macronutrient, the one macro that should not be compromised. Remember, most people will be overnourished, but also undermuscled. It is counterproductive for them to limit calories to the expense of protein and hence muscle mass. This is where other tactics can play a role. Zone 2 aerobic training can have a huge impact on our ability to dispose of glucose safely and also on our ability to access energy we have stored as fat. And the more muscle mass we have, the more capacity we have to use and store excess glucose and utilize stored fat. All right, we're going to see how important sleep can be to maintaining metabolic balance as well. If your issues fall more into the domain of lipoproteins and cardiovascular risk, it makes sense to focus on the fat side of the equation as well. Figure out which fats raise ApoB in you, right? And see, uh, and sometimes you're not able to avoid the fat, so you might have to use some pharmacological help, which is like the exetamide like I'm doing. Mm -hmm. excessive, excessive carbohydrate intake can also have spillover effects on ApoB in the form of elevated triglycerides. If there is one type of food I would, rec I would eliminate from everyone's diet, if I could, it would be fructose-sweetened drinks, including both sodas and fruit juices, which deliver too much fructose too quickly to a gut and liver that prefer to process fructose slowly. Just eat fruit and let nature provide the right amount of fiber and water. In the end, the best nutrition plan is the one that we can sustain. So like uh, the vertical diet says, compliance is a science. If you cannot comply to your diet, you know, you got to find the one that you can comply to. Yeah. Anyway, got to figure out what works for you. He's harping on this fructose thing. Though. Yeah, he is. <laughs> he, likes, he likes to bring it up. <clears throat> so we know that protein's important. We know that you need at least one gram per pound of body weight per day. Mm -hmm. Your carbs and fats are going to be, you know, also important, right? But you're going to fluctuate those based on what you're doing. You're also going to be paying attention to your ApoB. How is your ApoB responding to your nutritional interventions? See what I'm saying? So yeah. it all is starting to link together. Yeah. All right, sleep. Next chapter, sleep. How much sleep are you getting these days? Six to seven hours. Six to seven hours. Probably suboptimal. Yeah. Suboptimal for sure. <laughs> suboptimal. Better than what it used to be. It used to be like five hours. <laughs> Holy shit. All right, so sleep is uh, super important. Yeah. So let's talk about it. Into the book here. Less than 20 years ago, we knew relatively little about why we sleep, what happens while we're asleep, and the importance of sleep to both short-term performance and long-term health. We now know that chronic sleep debt is a far more insidio insidious killer than the acute sleep deprivation that results in falling asleep at stop signs. Many studies have found powerful associations between insufficient sleep, less than seven hours a night, 
Uh-oh. and adverse health outcomes ra- ranging from increased susceptibility to the common cold to dying of a heart attack. Poor sleep dramatically increases one's propensity for metabolic dysfunction, up to and including type 2 diabetes. It can wreak havoc with the body's hormonal balance. Looking back, I now suspect that at least some of my own health issues in my 30s had their roots in my disregard of sleep. So he says sleep is good for the body, sleep is good for the brain. You don't want to get too little sleep, you don't want to get too much sleep. And one of the first things he does with his own patients is fix their sleep, and that fixes a lot of issues with them. Yeah. Since I read this book, I've made it a point to get seven hours of sleep a night, and Mm -hmm. I can tell there's a big difference with that. Yeah. He said, we need to sleep about seven and a half to eight hours, eight and a half hours per night. So he's saying that's kind of your sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Definitely a discipline you got to lock in, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. to to hit those hours, yeah. you know. Yeah, he gives a lot of information in the book about how sleep is affecting us, how, why it's so important, mm-hmm. um, how we can sleep better. You can get sleep assessments, which I have had for sleep apnea, sleep yeah. insomnia. When mm-hmm. I was in the Navy, I had those done, which back then I was diagnosed for sleep uh, insomnia. Yeah. I think I'm over that now. All right, but I'm going to jump to the part where he's talking about how to improve your sleep. So we know that we need about seven to eight hours of sleep per night. You don't want to sleep too much. You don't want to sleep too little. If you're sleeping too much, that could also indicate problems, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So the people that are sleeping 12 hours a day, eh, maybe yeah. cut that out. You yeah. Know? yeah. All right. So here we go. The following are some rules or suggestions that I try to follow to help me sleep better. These are not magic bullets, but are mostly about creating better conditions for sleeping and letting your brain and body do the rest. The closer you can come to these operating conditions, the better your sleep will be. Of course, I'm not suggesting that it's necessary to do all these things. In general, it's best not to obsess over sleep. But the more of these things you can check off, the better your odds of a good night's sleep are. So I I like how he says don't obsess over your sleep because if you do that, you're stressing yourself out. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and you're adding stress to Mm -hmm. your life. All right, number one, don't drink any alcohol, period. Mm. Tough for a lot of people. He said, if you absolutely, positively must, limit yourself to one drink before about 6 p.m. Alcohol probably impairs sleep quality more than any other factor we can control. Don't confuse the drowsiness it produces with quality sleep. Mm. Boom. Number two, don't eat anything less than three hours before bedtime and ideally longer. It's best to go to bed with just a little bit of hunger. Although being ravenous can be distracting. Yeah. <clears throat> Three, abstain from stimulating electronics beginning two hours before bed. Try to avoid anything involving a screen if you're having trouble falling asleep. If you must, use a setting that reduces the blue light from your screen. So right here he says, <clears throat> abstain from stimulating electronics. And he did clarify earlier in the chapter that watching TV is not stimulating. So being on your phone, stimulating, watching TV, not stimulating. So if you're going to do something, it's better to like watch TV. Mm -hmm. Playing video games on social media, on your phone, 
those are all stimulating electronics. So those are to be avoided. Yeah. At least two hours before bed. For at least one hour before bed, if not more, avoid doing anything that is anxiety producing or stimulating, such as reading work email or God help you checking your social media. These get the ruminative worry prone areas of our brain humming, which is not what you want. For folks who have access, spend time in a sauna or hot tub prior to bed. Once you get into the cool bed, your lowering body temperature will signal to your brain that it's time to sleep. A hot bath or a shower can work too. <clears throat> time to get a hot tub, boys. Yeah. Uh, hey, anything to get a hot tub. <laughs> All right. Six, the room should be cool, ideally in the mid-60s. The bed should be cool too. Use a cool mattress or one of the many bed cooling devices out there. These are also great tools for couples who prefer different temperatures at night since both sides of the mattress can be controlled individually. You guys have that now? No. no. I mean, those are super expensive. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Seven, darken the room completely. Make it dark enough that you can't see your hand in front of your face with your eyes open if possible. If that's not achievable, use an eye shade. I use a silky one called Alaska Bear that costs about $8 and works better than the fancier ones I've tried. 8. Give yourself enough time to sleep. What sleep scientists call a sleep opportunity. This means going to bed at least 8 hours before you need to wake up, preferably 9. If you don't give, even give yourself a chance to get adequate sleep, then the rest of this chapter is moot. 9. Fix your wake-up time and don't deviate from it, even on weekends. If you need flexibility, you can vary your bedtime, but make it a priority to budget for at least 8 hours in bed each night. 10. Don't obsess over your sleep, especially if you're having problems. If you need an alarm clock, make sure it's turned away from you so you can't see the numbers. Clock watching makes it harder to fall asleep. And if you find yourself worrying about poor sleep scores, give yourself a break from your sleep tracker. <clears throat> so anyway, he's saying that if you're having true sleep problems, you need to get help, like insomnia, for example. Yeah. And then he said that there are people genetically, you know, like night owls versus early, early risers, if you can match yourself up with your genetic footprint. So if you like, tend to be more of a night owl, See if you can set up your schedule to be a night owl, your mm -hmm. sleep schedule. Yeah. You know? Makes sense. So anyway, sleep, important. There's you your know. 10 rules. There you go. I have implemented a lot of this. It has made a big difference. Like even charging like uh, something in my room that has an LED light on it, I'll turn it away from, you mm -hmm. know, where I'm sleeping at or put something over it, you know? Yeah. Definitely makes a big difference. I feel like those are pretty common. And then keeping uh, the keeping the house in mid sixties yeah, makes yeah. a big difference too. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> All right, so last chapter here. We've been through a lot of stuff today. This is where we're talking about emotional health. So he says that emotional health and physical health are closely intertwined in ways that mainstream medicine, medicine 2.0, has not even begun to grasp. Just even living alone or feeling lonely is linked to a much higher risk of mortality. 
It took me a while to recognize this, but feeling connected and having healthy relationships with others and with oneself is as imperative as maintaining efficient glucose metabolism or an optimal lipid protein profile. It is just as important to get your emotional house in order as it is to have your colonoscopy or an LP little a test, if not more so. It's just a lot more complicated. It's a two-way street between emotional and physical health. Makes sense. Boom. I mean, he went through some crazy shit. He details in the book emotionally, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, he says, It makes it difficult to offer blanket advice to everyone about this topic. Every reader will have their own emotional makeup, their own history, their own issues they need to address. Yet one difficulty is that we all share is that Medicine 2.0 is set up to treat mental and emotional health in pretty much the same way it treats everything else. Diagnose, prescribe, and bill. You know, medication. Yeah. One reason this approach has proved less effective in the psychological realm is that mental health and emotional health are not the same thing. Mental health encompasses disease-like states such as clinical depression and schizophrenia, which are complex and difficult to treat but do present with recognizable symptoms. Here we are more interested in emotional health, which incorporates mental health but is also much broader and less easy to codify and categorize. Emotional health has more to do with the way we regulate our emotions and manage our interpersonal relationships. I did not have mental illness per se, but I did have serious issues with my emotional health that impaired my ability to live happy and potentially put my life in danger. Medicine 2.0 has a harder time dealing with situations like this. Taking care of our emotional health requires a paradigm shift similar to the shift from Medicine 2.0 to Medicine 3.0. It's about long-term prevention. Our Medicine 3.0 thesis is that if we address our emotional health and do so early on, we will have a better chance of avoiding clinical mental health issues such as depression and chronic anxiety, and our overall health will benefit as well. Addressing emotional health takes just as much consistent effort and daily practice as maintaining other aspects of our physical health by creating an exercise routine, following a nutritional program, adhering to sleep rituals, and so on. The key is to be as proactive as possible so that we can continue to thrive in all domains of health span throughout the later years of our lives. What makes dealing with emotional health harder than physical health, I suspect, is that we are often less able to recognize the need to make changes. Few people who are overweight and out of shape fail to recognize they need to make a change. Making the change might be another story. But countless people are in desperate need of help with their emotional health, yet fail to recognize the signs and symptoms of their condition. I was the poster child for this group. So I like how he says, you know, basically pretty much everyone has emotional health they can work on. Mm -hmm. He said, if someone's out of weight and they're out of shape, 
you know, they know they need to make a change, but they might not be able to make the change. Mm-hmm. That's discipline, yeah. right? But emotional health, people may not even recognize that they need to make a change. Yeah. You know, which is crazy. All right. He did say that some medications can help along this path, but shouldn't be relied upon. Um, he did do, uh, he went, he, he actually went to two different places like, uh, immersion places you go, you stay there. They do meditation, MDMA, psilocybin, those types of things that are coming out to be powerful recovery tools, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, but he doesn't, he, you know, he mentioned specifically people are tethering their hopes of transformation solely to a ketamine trip or a journey to the jungles of Peru with a shaman to guide them through the mind blowing experience of Ashwanda, you know, the people are clinging to that, but it's more than that. They can help, but it's only one piece of the puzzle. Yeah. True recovery requires probing the depths of what shaped you, how you adapted to it and how those adaptations are now serving you or not. In my case, this also takes time as I found out the hard way. So it takes time. It takes effort. People are going to struggle with this more than other people, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> like we talked about with the stability with DNS, he brought up psychology, an aspect of psychology known as DBT. Let's see if I can pronounce it right. Dialectical behavior therapy is what he recommends. Hmm. DBT consists of four pillars joined by one overarching theme. The overarching theme is mindfulness which gives you the ability to work through the other four emotional regulation, which is getting control of your emotions, distress tolerance, our ability to handle emotional stressors, interpersonal effectiveness, how well we make our needs and feelings known to others and self-management, taking care of ourselves, beginning with basic tasks like getting up in time to go to work or school. All right. So those are the four pillars. You got mindfulness over all of them, emotional regulation, getting control of your emotions, distress tolerance, your ability to handle emotional stressors, mm-hmm. interpersonal effectiveness, how well we may make your needs and feelings known to each other, and self-management, taking care of yourselves, taking care of yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, interpersonal effectiveness how well we make our needs and feelings known to others that makes me think of people learning to say no in certain situations which he brings up right you know not always being a yes person right you know letting it be known that you're gonna you know letting yourself take care of yourself yeah not feeling like you always gotta succumb to other people yeah you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. which i think is a struggle in in society you know what i'm saying All right. All of this has to begin with the simple belief that real change is possible. That's the first important step. You have to believe you can change and that you deserve better. Yet it can be very it can be a very difficult step for many people to take for a number of reasons. The social stigma that persists around mental and emotional health to name one. It's difficult for many people including myself at one point, to recognize they have a problem, admit they need help, and then take action, particularly if it means talking about it openly with others, 
or taking time off work or dealing with the expense of treatment. This is the part of the shift in our mindset that needs to happen if we are to begin to address the epidemic of emotional health disorders, along with the attendant drug use, alcohol abuse, eating disorders, suicide, and violence that goes along with it. We have to make it okay to be vulnerable, to ask for and receive help. So that's wrapping it up for emotional health. Again, a lot of stuff I'm not covering. Yeah. You know, but trying to hit some of the wave tops. I mean, but if you if you are struggling with emotional health, you have to know it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to receive help. I think opening yourself up to that being vulnerable is probably the hardest part mm-hmm. for a lot of people, especially mm-hmm. if you've had years of, you know, keeping it in or yeah, not talking to people about certain things. Yeah. That's probably the hardest hurdle is to start opening up to people and uh, maybe open up to the wrong person. Then that can fuck you up more. Yeah. You know, which can set you back a couple steps. Yeah. So it's definitely a journey, you know. Yeah. All right. Wrapping it all up with a quote at the end here. I think people get old when they stop thinking about the future. If you want to find someone's true age, listen to them. If they talk about the past, and they talk about all the things that happened that they did, they've gotten old. If they talk about their dreams, their aspirations, and what they're still looking forward to, then they're young. Here's to staying young, even as we grow older. Boom. And that's a review of the book, Outlive, by Dr. Peter Atia. I know that was long-winded. That's a lot of good information. So just some protocols to review again, and this is not all of them. It's just the main ones. You want that DEXA scan annually as the recommendation. Check your visceral fat. Check your lean body mass, which is your muscle mass. If your lean muscle mass is degrading, you need to increase your protein, increase your strength training. You know what I'm saying? Triglycerides, the HDL ratio should be less than one to one if possible. ApoB. Check that ApoB. Less than 60, ideally uh, less than 30. The closer you can get to 30, the better. But less than 60 is ideal. Sauna four times a week, 20 minutes each at 179 degrees or higher. Or hot tub. Or hot tub. (laughs) Uh, CT scan angiogram to check the status of your arteries. Colonoscopy by the age of 40 and every two years after that. Zone 2 cardio, hit that three hours every week. Uh, VO2 max, you want to test it annually. And uh, your protocol for VO2 max is four minutes on. Hard work. Maintaining a hard work pace. Four minutes off, do it once a week. Mm -hmm. So those are like some of your basic protocols. There's a lot more, obviously, we didn't go into. But remember that exercise is critical. Strength training is critical. Zone 2, VO2 max. Nutrition. You know, protein is the most important thing. You know, don't eat too much. Don't eat too little, right? Work on getting your your lean mass up mm-hmm. to speed, you know. And then just remember the four horsemen. You got heart disease, cancer, dementia, and then type 2 diabetes or metabolic syndrome. So yep. just some things I do after reading this book. Obviously, I'm tracking my ApoB. 
I do have a scale that gives me a rough estimate of my body fat percentage. It's the we thing scale or with things scale mm-hmm. with things. I don't know. Got it I on think Amazon. I got one from you. Have you. One. Yeah, it does tell you your uh, right. guest, guesstimate. Right. Mm-hmm. And you have uh, an app on your phone. So basically yeah. you stand on the scale and then it gets, sends all the information to your phone so you can track it over time. Mm-hmm. I also have the we things or with things uh, blood pressure uh-huh. cuff. And every night I sit down, I put it on, I check my blood pressure. Mm. I'm u- my average is about 118 over 70 or something like that. But remember, you want that blood pressure less than 120 over 80. Yeah. Or somewhere close to 120 over 80, that's ideal. Mm-hmm. So I do know that when I have periods of high stress, it goes up. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, I got I to gotta get the stress in check, you know? Yeah. Or if I've gotten some bad sleep, you know, it goes up. So that stuff does matter. Yeah. And uh, remember your sleep protocols too. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, any thoughts from you? It's a lot to, uh, or a lot of information explained here that maybe I need to hone in on or at least be aware of. You you're know, hit, to start. You're, paying you're about to, to hit that thirty. Start paying attention to. You're about to hit that thirty. You better start now. About hit thirty. Got to get that skincare going. Yeah, yeah. I need to get on my skincare routine. My one hour skincare routine. So real quick before we move out of here, um, the telehealth company that I'm using, maybe you'll find some use from it. It's Merrick Health. My doctor's uh, Dr. Adam Hotchkiss, and you can do your blood test through them as well. Mm-hmm. So I do the uh, vertical diet stand efforting panel. That's the panel that I do. And uh, your doctor will review it with you and give you recommendations on what to do. And you can also talk to them. Like I had read this book before I even did that. And then I did that. And, uh, I told them what I was, I had written down all these protocols. I knew what I wanted my APOB to be. And so we talked about that and then boom, came up with a game plan. And then we said, we'll check it again in six months, which is coming up and, uh, you know, going from there. So good to go. Check it out. All right. But before we wrap this thing up, I'm going to be talking real quick. Pack talk podcast is sponsored by Canine Revolution Dog Training. So if you need dog training, let us know. Mention you're a podcast listener. We have a staff of over 25 people ready to serve you and your dog. Highly trained. Professional dog trainers, training assistants, admin assistant, production team. Yep. Good to go. If you want to listen to the stories of our trainers, you can go to Pack Talk Podcast episode 48. That's Chris. Mm -hmm. That's his story. Pack Talk Podcast episode 51 is Kevin's story. Pack Talk Podcast episode 52 is Lexi's story. And then Pack Talk Podcast episode 67 is my story. Mm-hmm. Where I did talk about some of my drinking days. I don't <laughs> drink anymore. Navy. I don't drink anymore. But Navy days. some stuff happened back in the day before I knew about these protocols. Listen to the episode, find out. Yep. All right. We're also sponsored by Canine Revolution Apparel, which we have the new storefront on Amazon, you know. There was recently a bad hurt, not a bad hurricane, but like a tropical storm moving through our area. I had my Canine Revolution apparel rain jacket mm. on as I was going to Denny's to eat. Mm, Denny's? Yeah. Really? That's hurricane protocol. Go to Denny's. Interesting. All right, but you got hoodies on there. You got guinea shirts. You got chicken shirts. You got gym shirts when you're getting your VO2 max and your zone two and your strength training in. You got your gym shirt for that. You got your dog shirts. Yep. You're good to go. Also, Origin USA, that's your American-made apparel, American-made boots, jeans, 
jujitsu gear, MMA gear. You can use code SINGER101 for 10% off at Origin USA. You can use code SINGER101 for 10% off also at Jocko Fuel, which is your American-made supplements yep. that are good for you. Right? We talked about fruco- fructose yeah. in the uh, discussion today from Outlive. You know what does not have fructose in it? Jocko. Jocko Go. Jocko Moke. Yeah. Which I need to order some. Also, my wife Lauren told me this week that Jocko Pink Mist flavor of the Jocko Go is the best thing. <laughs> it's pretty damn ever. good. She's like, you better keep those things stocked for Holy me. Holy shit. Yeah. I Tell got, her to use your promo code. I got, I got <laughs> used it. I got three yeah. cases for her in the pantry. Yeah. Oh, so shit. Three it. cases. Damn. She's back in the gym. Mm. Also, she was like, you know, maybe we should make some Jocko Go ice cubes. Put some pink mist in an oh. ice cube tray. Put it in the freezer. Wow. <laughs> creative. Getting then she creative said, with your then Jocko she said Go. Jocko Go popsicles. Put pink mist in the popsicle thing. Make some Jocko Go popsicles. Wow. She's getting creative with the That's Jocko Goes. Well, you know, our six-year-old did go back to school recently. Mm-hmm. Came back with a sickness one day, which happens when you're in school. So she said, hey, you got the Cold War? I was like, yeah. She's like, I'm taking it. So then she took the Cold War, never got sick. So <laughs> She never got sick. Never got sick. Wow. Ask her. So anyway, that's Jocko Fuel for you. That's going to provide you with that optimal protein as well. While we're talking about Lauren, she's trying to get on the protein train. Yeah. That's a struggle for her. Mm. She's busy. She's a mom. She's running around with the kids. She's doing other stuff. So, like, you know, time is fleeting for her. Right. And it's hard for her to, like, also she gets kind of bored of, like, the same thing. Like, me, I eat, like, beef every day, chicken every day, salmon, whatever. She can't do what I do. Mm. So, she's, like, she needs the protein. Yeah. So, she's on the Jocko Mulk, you know, ready to drink the chocolate. That's her go-to. She's drinking that at least once, maybe twice a day. The other day, also, she was eating a malt cookie. Those are new. Yeah, they're new. But anyway, so she's getting her protein in, and the Jocko Fuel is helping her get that protein in. So if you need help getting your protein in to hit that one gram per pound of body weight a day, get your Jocko Mulk. That's your protein supplement right there. Hell yeah. But I would recommend only one protein supplementation per day. Let your other meals be actual. Yeah. Uh, protein from animal sources if possible yeah if you're like a vegan you could get the plant options Mm. you know but you got to account for the fact that those plants aren't giving you as much protein as the animals so you just got to be aware of that anyway singer 101 for 10 percent off of your jocko fuel um good to go they also got the vitamin d3 which we talked about in the book you need that vitamin d3 level that vitamin d level that can help you get there Mm mm-hmm all right, we got the Canine Revolution NFT program. It's live. You can go to www.kineticrewards.com. You can go ahead and secure your NFT, your digital certificate. You can watch the video on how to download that to your phone. We've got a couple of partners in the area. We've got DT Mobile Detailing, Dave, Marine Corps veteran. He's going to detail your car, your truck, your RV, your boat, your tractor, whatever you need. Mm-hmm. We got Sharpshooter Pressure Wash. Technically, our trainer, Chris Tipton's brother, Josh, coming to sharpshoot your house. Get it done for you. Yep. Why would you waste time and money to go buy your own pressure washer, pressure wash your house? You have to, like, get the hose out. Got to get the chemicals. I mean, it's just you're, you're just losing money there. Have Josh come out, and he's just going to sharpshoot it real quick and be done while you're getting other things done. Yeah. 
you could be getting your protein in while he's pressure washing your house. Yeah. You know? Also, all is well Somerville. That's your holistic dog cat food and treats and stuff like that. Also, they were on Pot Talk Podcast episode 14 talking about dog nutrition with Blair. Mm-hmm. Check that out. Carolina Premier Home Inspections. That's Bob coming out to inspect your house, your town home, your apartment, pre-drywall, maintenance inspections, whatever you need. Bob was on Pack Talk Podcast episode 74. Highly recommend you check him out. Yep. Also, Carolina Premier Pest Control, also owned by Bob, and ran with his brother Eric. So again, check out Pack Talk Podcast 74. But they're going to come take care of your pest control needs in your yard, in your house, whatever you need. Also, also the Velasquez Company, ran by Antonio. That's your painting, your fencing, drywall repair, things like that. Also, Black Force MMA, owned by Dwight Decker from Pack Talk Podcast Episode 71. Dwight. Navy veteran, mm-hmm. former law enforcement. Check him out. Hardcore. Hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> also, the CEO of Grappling PTSD, mm-hmm. nonprofit for veterans. Which also, mean, Hall of Fame. Also, Hall of Fame MMA. Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, come on. This goes on for Dwight. Yeah, it does go on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, moving on. Also, Cane Bay Chiropractic, that's Doc Anthony. You can check out Pack Talk Podcast number seven, the first guest we ever had to hear about him. That's in Cane Bay, obviously. Also, Lanzara Defense Solutions. Pack Talk Podcast number 58 was done with him where we talked about why do mass shootings happen? What can we do to prevent mass shootings? What should you be aware of? Mm-hmm. They're going to give you some perks for CWP, Defensive Pistol Courses, right, for being a digital certificate holder. Also, Aquafusion IV Hydration. We talked today about getting those vitamins, those nutrients, and hydration. Did you know that it's harder to remain hydrated when you're older? I didn't. (laughs) Well, now you know. I didn't mention that in the book. I should have highlighted (laughs) that section. But Aquafusion IV can help you because hydration is critical. You know what I'm saying? So these are all of our partners in the digital certificate program. There's more to come. But please reach out if you have questions. That's www.kineticrewards.com to access that digital certificate. Also, we got our Pack Talk Podcast YouTube channel up. We got our guest speech on there that we did with Antonio's program. So if you want me to be a guest speaker at your event, just email me at chadsinger at caninerevolutiondogtraining.com. We can get you squared away. Or if you're a business owner or a dog trainer, do you need someone to talk to? Do you need a coach? Do you need a consultant? You can email me, Chad Singer at caninerevolutiondogtraining.com. We'll get you squared away. Last but not least, we just want to thank our military first responders, teachers. Thank you guys for all you do. If you guys need dog training, please let us know. We'd be honored to help you out. And also you get a discount for that too. So until next time, this is Back Talk Podcast. Out.